everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of August 15th, 2023. Only two weeks of Night Terrors left. Maybe that excites you. You can't wait for the end of the story. Maybe it excites you because you can't wait till it's over. Uh, either way, it's going to be over in a couple weeks. One more week of regular books, and then the last week, August 28th, is just the final issue, which is uh, Night Terrors Night's End, which... Um, I mean, I mean, at this point, I feel like it has to be a giant size book because so many of these two issue series are like to be concluded in night's end. Right. So it's, uh, I don't know. It just feels like it's going to be gigantic. But uh, I, I put this up on social media. I hope everybody got a chance to see it. Joshua Williamson did uh, an interview for the DC.com website, the blog they have there. Tim Beadle uh, is a guy who does a podcast whiskey and the witcher i think is the one he's most known for he drinks whiskey watches the witcher talks about it on his podcast the witcher being the henry formerly henry cavill show uh netflix show but anyway uh it was a great interview there's josh uh joshua had a lot to say i was specifically struck by the fact that he said these nightmares aren't necessarily what the heroes fear you know it's more about their actual nightmares. And so it took me down this rabbit hole. I actually went to the Mayo Clinic website, very famous uh, medical uh, institute here in the United States. There's actually one here in Phoenix where I live and looked up the clinical definition of nightmare. And it, it said basically things you're afraid of, but also <laughs> things that make you, things that make you anxious, right? Things yeah. that cause you anxiety, yeah. you know, a lot of other negative feelings that can make you angry. It can make you nervous. So not necessarily things you fear, but you go through and you read the books, uh, and a lot of the writers, they're specifically mentioning things. They're specifically mentioning fears, but not necessarily in the books that Williamson's writing. So I thought it was interesting. It does, it did and does give me a little bit different perspective. I read that article before I read, uh, I read that interview before I read this week's books. And so, yeah, it is, it does give, like I said, a little bit different perspective, um, but, you know, again, in thinking about this as sort of a DC version of Nightmare on Elm Street, I still don't really care, right? This is not – mixing DC and horror is just not something that I, I wanted, you know. Um, and we can argue and talk about or debate or discuss how successful it's been. Um, some of the books have been more interesting than others. Yeah. Uh, and that's been probably – consistent the one thing that's been consistent about this event from the start is its inconsistency <laughs> yeah well one of the one of the frustrating things is that at the beginning we were told uh it, we were told that insomnia was looking for the nightmare stone within these individual tie-ins and that the nightmare stone was located in one of the heroes or villains nightmare but then in, in night tears issue three it was revealed that it's not in the nightmare anymore. It's in the in-between world between the waking world and a nightmare. So the entire premise that we've been operating on from the beginning is completely different, revealed in Night Terrors number three, making me wonder why should we bother with finishing reading the times? I don't remember hearing it. That, I mean, I'm not saying that it wasn't. I don't remember hearing it said that it was hidden. In, I mean, it was intimated in the very first whatever. I can't even remember what the name of the first book was. The Night Terrors uh, first Blood, that's what it was, Night right. First Blood. Yeah, the, Insomnia himself said, oh, it's probably in, you know, he sent, he invaded everybody's nightmares because the 
sort of the implication was that it was going to be in one of these. I don't know if DC editorial ever said it was. <laughs> well, but I mean, I, I take your point. I take your point. It was clearly indicated that in the story, and it just it just seemed rather superfluous. I mean, you and I, you and I joked about the fact that it's not like it was only in a couple of issues that we read that Insomnia even asked. In fact, I think Superman was the only character that Insomnia ever asked, "Where's the Nightmare Stone?" Yeah, and I think he maybe asked Batman too, but so he wasn't really looking too hard by the sounds of from what we read, anyway. So, in any event, it's just it's just a, it's just a comment, and and you're you know you're to pick up on your point about nightmares not just being your fears but also your anxieties and maybe those things that make you uncomfortable that's also been reflected in the stories because you know in a lot of the stories i i I think in particular poison ivy i think poison ivy's was not so much a nightmare but an anxiety and some maybe some of her stressors and what have you so it 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 makes sense that you know nightmares don't necessarily have to be your abject worst fears but uh uh well we'll see either way it's not this isn't my favorite event by any by any stretch, but it did have we did we did have some moments, and you and I have talked about them. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting coming from the hospitality industry, working in it for so many years as like a bartender <laughs> and what have you. Very common for people to work in that industry, even years after. Like I haven't, you know, interacted with the public, been a bartender for a long, long time, longer than I care to think about. Yeah, but every once in a while, I still have that nightmare of being overwhelmed. Like, you know, the bar is like packed, five people deep. Everybody <laughs> wants a drink. Yeah. That's not something I fear. I, I'm not scared. I wouldn't even now. I I wouldn't be scared to go back behind the bar and and make drinks for people. Whatever. It's not a fear. But yeah, you you have that nightmare, if you will, and you wake up. Yeah, you your heart's racing, and yeah, while you're in the dream, you feel that emotion. So I get I get what. Uh, Williamson is saying, again, I encourage people go check it out. Uh, there's a link if you follow me on social media. There's a link to the to my thoughts on the article and a link to the article itself. Um, so you can either go read the article first and read my thoughts, read my thoughts first, go check it out. Whatever. If you if you're curious, if you want to know more about the context and how Williamson views this event, how he came up with the idea, why insomnia, not another big bad. Which we'll talk. He mentions just the need for more big bads. And being that there's a what I would consider a big bad that shows up here this week in many books, we'll talk about that uh, at the end. But let's go ahead and dive in. First book, Night Terrors, Nightwing, number two, written by Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, uh, Danielle DiNaculo on art, Adriana Lucas on colors, Wes Abbott on letters. Um I'm going to have you go first, Rocky. What yeah. did you think about this? Uh, <laughs> what, what did I lose the bet? Or okay, yeah, <laughs> I got. I got uh, for those listening, I I can tell you that uh, I joked with Jace that my comments normally I, I can certainly be long winded at times. I confess to that, much to Jace's dismay sometimes. Uh, but <laughs> I I can tell you that this is likely going to be uh, a shorter uh, review for me, particularly with this Nightwing. Uh, I got. I, I just took. I, I didn't take any notes. The only notes I took for any comic book this week was on Night Terrors Wonder Woman number two and Night Terrors Catwoman number two because I felt those actually had maybe something potentially interesting to say in, in light of what's happening or going to be happening in their respective comic book series uh, once Night Terrors ends. But this uh, Nightwing here, it, it while it picks up from Nightwing is just having a, a nightmare. He's having a nightmare and he's thinking about uh, uh, Scarecrow. And... He in and this series, it just he's he has a map. He's lost in Arkham. The map is senseless. 
I'm not sure how it reflects. It's interesting that you talk about anxieties. It, it doesn't really feel like Nightwing has a nightmare here. It ultimately ends with Nightwing along in combination with a mechanical looking Oracle slash Batgirl along with uh, Cassandra Kane. They end up essentially, I guess, killing Batman. So that the nightmare is actually, I think, akin to, to Dick Grayson killing Bruce Wayne, killing uh, Batman and because and the scarecrow reminds him that deep down in the darkest places uh, places that you never knew you you're, you had you, you you have secretly always wanted there's a dark part of you that wants to kill your father which really I I, I never really thought of Dick Grayson as ever having that in his dark places so I, I didn't get it I it's it's not in any way shape or form related to anything going on in Tom Taylor's uh, book for Nightwing I uh, where where you would think Bruce we, you think what Dick Grayson would have some anxieties about now being a philanthropist multi billionaire with uh, you know failing the people of Bloodhaven and what have you no I'm just speculating I know I know I'm playing script doctor but give you know I I would have liked to have seen more of his anxieties reflected more accurately based upon what the current storyline is in the Nightwing comic because I have to say one of the reasons why I enjoy the Night Terrors and Catwoman under Teeny Howard. And Josie Campbell's Night Terrors Wonder Woman is that there are some reminiscent reflections of what's gone on in those titles are going to be with Tom King's Wonder Woman number one. But in any event, uh, not, you know, not a lot happens here. He just he just has a he just has a nightmare of him killing Batman. And then at the end, he wakes up and that's really it. I, and not much happens. And. At the end, it's just the ending, and he just wakes up in bed, and he, uh, he, that's it. I so I don't, I didn't get anything out of it. Uh, the art was good; I didn't mind the art, uh, but I just wish it was in service of a more interesting story. But uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean the art, the art was okay for me. It's not my favorite style of art for for this type of book. Danielle Dinaculo. He worked with Tom Taylor on his Seven Secrets over at Boom. I think that's probably what he's most known for. I think his art style worked better on that title versus what it what it did here. Um, and it's interesting because the first issue of this, you know, talking about these different guards in Arkham that are all animals and what have you, it was just very strange and kind of felt like it came out of nowhere. Uh, but it was not necessarily overtly commented on in the story, but I felt like it was something that y- your attention was drawn to. And then we get the second issue and it's not really mentioned. It's not focused on. It, it's it's like, why did you bother to, and again, it wasn't overt, but it was sort of pointed out, commented on in the first issue. And then it's completely ignored in this issue. So what was the point of pointing it out the first go round? Like I didn't, I didn't understand that. And then, I mean, this just felt really long, right? Like it's 30 pages. And it was just like, when is it going to end? Because to, you know, to echo what Rocky was saying, it sort of felt like, well, this, this doesn't feel like something Dick Grayson would, and again, it's not necessarily fears, but it doesn't feel like something Dick Grayson would even have anxiety about because the idea of him killing Bruce is so far like out of left field that I don't see it ever happening or being considered or what have you. Uh, and then, you know, to top it off, we've got Scarecrow in the dream, in the nightmare, what have you. And I'm, I'm assuming he's some sort of nightmarish construct of Dick Grayson's psyche. And yet, 
at the end when insomnia shows up in the nightmare and he's it seems like it's the actual scarecrow talking to to insomnia saying hey you know th- thanks for letting me be a part of this basically uh you know it was it was great you know what's going to come of this and then de grayson wakes up and yeah he remembers having this nightmare about having killed uh bruce wayne and uh we're told he's going to be thinking about it you know for a you know a long time to come so are there going to be ramifications for this um I don't know. It just it it felt like a bit of a mess, honestly. And and then with the way, like I said, we were told at the end, he's going to be thinking about this, you know, for a long time. Uh, and then the end, so not to be continued in, in Night's End. But how much how much weight are we supposed to give this, right? So I, I don't know. I I tried to go into this with as much of an open mind as possible. I did not care for the first issue at all. I think I even said when we reviewed it that it was my least favorite Night Terrors issue one of of all of them. Then I went to San Diego Comic-Con and I had people telling me that, man, Nightwing was the best one. And so, you know, I have to respect that not everybody's going to have my same perspective on it. (laughs) But so I really tried to, to read this and to, you know, read between the lines and get something out of it. But I I just, I just don't know what, like, is it a comment on Oracle? Is it a comment on Dick? Is it a comment on their relationship? Is it a comment on uh, commentary on, on Dick's relationship to Bruce? Like it just, I, I it don't just know what they were talking about. I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. It made sense as, as a nightmare. Right. But especially with that line, I kept going back to that line at the end about this one's going to stay with him for a long time. Dick Grayson has not, ever been in my experience and anything I've ever read him been somebody who has self-doubt right maybe with the exception of when he was Rick Grayson after being shot in the head um Dan Jurgens that wasn't you know very well received the one thing you could say about Dick is you know once he and not that he ever got over the death of his parents obviously but once he became Robin and and kind of grew into his own and certainly when he moved on to establish the Teen Titans and then another step forward when he left the Robin identity behind and became Nightwing. Like those are all like huge moments in Dick Grayson's history where you say, yes, he took a step forward in levels of maturity and confidence. He believes in himself. I mean, people talk all the time about how he's their favorite DC character and it's because of his personality and his personality is not somebody who would ever have issues with self-confidence with with doubt with this idea of him wanting to replace bruce so again i just i have no idea i mean it it seems like to me if you're talking about fearing that you would murder bruce wayne murder your mentor that would be more of a jason todd story right jason could (laughs) yeah lose control still blames bruce for getting you know beat to death with a crowbar what have you that makes more sense to me than than this. So, or, or even or I, even Alfred coming back from the dead and saying, "I'm disappointed in you," or s- something like that. You know, like because you know Alfred left him all that money, and what did you do with my money? Why did you go and like I don't know. Again, I'm playing script doctor, but anyway. Yeah, I I, I just I, I don't know. This just didn't it didn't work for me. I don't know what it was supposed to do, but whatever it was supposed to do, I didn't care for it. Now. Hmm. Uh, if you did, if it was your favorite, then leave 
please leave some comments below and kind of explain to us because <laughs> when I asked those people who said it was their favorite to explain, they really couldn't articulate, couldn't articulate it. So, yeah. and speaking of comments below, uh, I had some issues with my, with my microphone over the last, I don't know, six weeks. So I didn't realize just how bad it was until I listened. So if you've noticed and it sounds better, leave some comments below and let us know. Uh, really appreciate that. Uh, okay, moving on. We've got Night Terrors of Wonder Woman, number two. This is from writer Josie Campbell. Juan Ferrer is the artist. Pat Brosso on letters. Um, oh, you know what? Before I do that, let me mention that one thing that I, I did very much appreciate about Nightwing, and th this is going to be the case for most of the issues this, this week, fantastic covers. They had some great, great covers. Uh, the main uh, or the main cover B, I guess, um, by friend uh, Francesco Mattina, which is this almost bird-themed-looking Nightwing, I thought was absolutely fantastic. So I will give a, uh, a shout-out for that. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, Wonder Woman number two also has some fantastic covers. Um, yeah, I mean, every one of them is, is really great. So anyway, I know uh, this was one of the better books for you this week, so uh, you go first on this one as well. What did you think? Well, I... I I hasten to say better. I just, I'm just saying that, uh, I, I try to find, I, I try to find something to hang my hat on, on this because I find night terrors to be uh, a boring event because it's clearly a side. It's, it's a sidestepping from the, from the night terrors event proper. It's completely disconnected from the night terror story, frankly. Uh, it doesn't really, you know, we know at the end of all these nightmares, they're all going to end up in, in night's end. So all these heroes in these, in their tie-in issues, in their two tie-in issues, they just have a nightmare. Then they end up at night's end where I'm presumably the Justice League and the other superheroes get together and defeat Insomnia. We know that. Uh, but it, it, what I mean, what I like about, it, at least with Wonder Woman, uh, and I should I should drop the uh, I should mention here that uh, uh, we we know Wonder Woman number one that Tom King's coming out in September and that's got a lot of hoopla and if you know if you just know the 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 advertisements of what that is about about a essentially a rogue Amazon uh, creating havoc and that the Amazons become persona non grata uh, in the United States. If, if you know that, uh, I got that in mind. I keep that in mind here. And I'm, I'm, as I'm reading Wonder Woman number two of Night Terrors, uh, this continues from last issue where Wonder Woman has been swallowed by a giant serpent. And, and the idea here is that, you know, gods never die, they suffer. So Wonder Woman is suffering. So even though Wonder Woman is technically, she's swallowed by the serpent, uh, we all know that gods never die. In fact, it's an ongoing joke in Wonder Woman. It's easy for Wonder Woman to resurrect gods because they, they never really die, right? Gods, gods just kind of like, they, they drop dead, but they're not really dead. They kind of suffer, they come back, they're pissed off and they get revenge. That's kind of a Wonder Woman trope. And... Um, uh, in fact, there's there's a scene in here that I thought was absolutely hilarious. There's a page where it's actually uh, it, it shows uh, Wonder Woman, uh, uh, an evil version of herself or this this nightmare version of her or, is holding up a sign that says Wonder Woman wanted save a life report an Amazon today. And I thought, well, that was a very curious thing to have in this. What, is that part of her anxiety, part of her nightmare? Because we know that in Tom King's Wonder Woman run. People are going to be, you know, America, you know, America is going to be 
arguably afraid of the Amazons, you know, and you're supposed to report an Amazon, save a life. Amazons become arguably dangerous. There's a conspiracy of Amazons, rogue Amazons in America. And I thought it was interesting here that part of Wonder Woman's potential nightmare or anxiety is maybe society rejecting the Amazons, rejecting her mission, rejecting what she stands for, rejecting the Amazonian uh, code of ethics of care ethics and I thought I thought that was interesting here what it, what it that it touched upon that along with the fantastic art uh, by Juan Ferrer which I thought was really really good here some of the art is just fantastic one of my one of my favorite pages it's a double page spread it shows a, a soldier sort of a roman centurion with uh with wearing the centurion helmet with the face half the skin peeled off the art the the artistic detail is absolutely fantastic so kudos to uh, juan ferrera fantastic and uh, i want to give some compliments to josie campbell here because this isn't part of the main story wonder woman story proper this is really wonder woman just having a nightmare prior to tom king taking the reins and she has a lot of messages here that, that uh, you know, Wonder Woman is fearful that the more you the more you accommodate man's world, the more rage builds. And so it's it's one of Wonder Wonder Woman's fears. It is suggested is that she she goes into berserker mode, that she loses that that the warrior. She's the peaceful warrior. What happens if the warrior overcomes the peaceful aspect of the peaceful warrior dichotomy? Wonder Woman and Amazons, they actually they, they, they do have something called berserker rage. And for those of you who, who read who enjoy Wonder Woman, Daniel Warren Johnson did a fantastic series called uh, Wonder Woman Dead Earth and the premise of that story is Wonder Woman going into berserker mode and actually killing Superman in an apocalyptic future and the whole story is sort of surrounded on that idea of, of berserker rage Wonder Woman and so this is something that is it, it is something that is prevalent in in Wonder Woman mythology you just don't see it very much because too many damn writers are focused on her being peace loving compassionate blah 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 preachy supplicating it's annoying uh, I like that Josie Campbell at least touched upon it even if it's in the form of her freaking nightmare and um, and there is a and, and I also like the fact that there's a history of insanity in Wonder Woman's family Thank you, Josie Campbell, for recognizing the fact that, guess what? Wonder, Woman's, Wonder Woman isn't all about her mother. She's also about her father. Her father is Zeus. Zeus can be an, a, an insane god. So, I mean, she's got her brother, Hercules, who's arguably crazy. She's got her brother, Ares, who uh, is insane. Uh, I mean, so this idea that Wonder Woman should naturally be kind and naturally, it's nonsense. And, and she has the starker aspects of her character that's, that's not explored enough. At least it's mentioned in this nightmare. And I like that. Josie Campbell knows a lot about Wonder Woman. And I like that she's dropping that and dropping those knowledge bombs here in this story. Even though she can't do much with them. It's the second issue. She can't do much with them. But I appreciate it. And I really like the art. And... Um, yeah, so I actually enjoyed it more for the themes and more for for the exploration of just to remind the reader that hey, you know Wonder Woman, she's she's got a darker side here and here's what it is. Now I just wish we'd see more of it. And I'm really hoping just a little bit maybe that we get a little bit more of the darker side of the Amazons and Tom King's Wonder Woman run, but we're going to have to wait for September for that. And uh so what do you think of this? Yeah, I, I... It's funny, I, I had a similar experience to you, right? Like, at no time, at no point when I was reading this originally, uh, you know, the first issue, did I think for a moment about Tom King's Wonder Woman, right? Like, this is, that, that's coming later and what have you. But, you know, I got a chance to, to actually read the first issue. And so then it, it 
it becomes something that's so much different in that context. And so I found myself wondering, well, did Tom talk to Josie? Did Josie know about Tom's Wonder Woman, you know, before that, that series got announced or what have you? I mean, I've, I've no idea. I have no way to know. It made, it made for interesting reading. Um, so I, I liked what was given here by Josie. I liked this idea of Wonder Woman, that berserker rage you're talking about, the fact that she's a warrior. It was, it was just interesting having that other dark aspect of her talk about, yeah, you, you, you're saying that you're, you're in man's world or you're in, you're out in the greater world. You're not isolated on paradise Island because you want to make the world a better place and you want there to be peace and, and all kinds of, you know, these preachy things and lofty ambitions. And, you know, you can even think about what was done in the second wonder woman movie, right. Where it's through her, you know, belief and nonviolence and what have you, uh, that she's trying to sort of solve the, the world's problems. But she's trying to do it by punching things, right? It's such a in, incongruous way of uh, of thinking about it, right? Like it's kind of like the peacemaker, right? That that that's taking this idea to the extremes. I want peace so much. I want you know nonviolence to be the, a way of life so much that I'm willing to go to any level of violence to accomplish it, right? The, the ends are completely. Uh, justifying the means here. And, and that's what Josie Campbell is pointing out, kind of the inherent hypocrisy of Wonder Woman. And and Diana, she, you know, she takes this to heart. She sort of starts thinking about it and starts to understand, like, why maybe this darker version of herself is, uh, is right. And then on top of that, layering in all this stuff of, you know, she's not even human she's a demigod and she's above everyone. And yeah, that, that page by one for that you have up on the screen right now, or she's sitting on a throne and everything is beneath her. She's so much better than everything else. It just, yeah, really, really impactful stuff. Uh, and it, it made me think a lot about who Wonder Woman is as a character. And then again, leading me toward Tom King's run and what he's doing. And, and so this just worked for me on, on a lot of levels. Um, and I especially like the, the resolution when Wonder Woman acknowledged that, yeah, uh, when I'm about to go in battle, I do get excited. There's a part of me that that longs for combat, you know, and I think it's not necessarily the violence of it. And it's not that she wants to inflict pain. It's more, you know, it's a test. It's a test. She's an Amazon. And, you know, when you talk about testing yourself in battle and that sort of thing, um, you know, there's something to that. So, yeah, I thought this was really great i enjoyed uh the resolution that um that josie campbell gave us at the end and uh yeah for me this this worked on on quite a few levels so um yeah i was i was very impressed it was not what i necessarily was expecting <laughs> like i mentioned when i uh, initially picked this up i gave no thought to this somehow tying into um to tom's wonder wonder woman run coming coming up but yeah it's in some ways it seemed to, which I thought again was was really interesting. <clears throat> yeah, there was uh, a backup. You wanna you wanna talk briefly about what you thought about the backup of Nubia and the and the horrific Mother Gaia coming out of the Well of Souls? <laughs> yeah, I thought the backup was okay. Um, I, what I did enjoy about the backup, well, let me give the credits first of all, because um, yeah. there was one thing about the backup that I that I thought worked. I mean, the art was was just okay. 
Um, I wasn't overly impressed as opposed to the main story where I thought the art was, was really fantastic, but, um, but maybe it's, again, it's the art from, uh, Megan Hetrick's the artist, Stephanie Williams is a writer colored by Marisa Louise letters by Becca Carey. Um, I thought the art, it did suit the style of story, right? It's a little more muddy. The colors are a little bit of a darker palette. So it's kind of what you come to expect. Um, but what was interesting and fun about the story that we got was, it was a lot of fun to see what Mother Gaia was saying to Nubia in terms of, you know, you failed and that sort of thing. And and then everything when Nubia kind of rises up and starts fighting back against Mother Gaia, she's sort of almost verbatim giving back the same thing that, you know, Mother Gaia was telling her. So it was cool to see that kind of flipped around. Um, but yeah, I mean, this was just, so, just okay. I mean, I, I think at this point it's fair to say that Stephanie Williams has become the go-to for writing Nubia, um, but she hasn't been that that interesting, uh, unfortunately. I, I keep going back to like the very first backup of Nubia, where she met her aunt or whoever it was that ran that nightclub. That was the most interesting Nubia story we got, and it's it had potential, and there was a lot of promise there. And I, I feel like the character just hasn't hasn't really fulfilled the promise, but. I don't blame Stephanie Williams for that. I think it's an editorial failure. Like think about interesting stories with Hippolyta, right? Mm -hmm. DC specifically took Hippolyta out of her role as queen of the Amazons and put her in the justice leagues because queen of the Amazons, it's such a political role and you're kind of stuck there in paradise Island. And what really can you do? You know what I mean? Like you're not wonder woman. You're not out there in, in the world. So I don't know either take Nubia out of that role or stop trying to make her work because yes. I just don't think as queen of the Amazons, it really works. And we, and you and I even commented on it when we were uh, reading the Nubia miniseries about how it didn't make sense that Nubia was, was leaving the Island. Like when you're the ruler, your job is to stay there and to make decisions and, you know, to rule yeah. and send out other people you delegate. <laughs> and so like, if you want Nubia to be an interesting character, then you have to take her out of that role of as queen of the Amazon. At least that, that's, that's what I think. So anyway, what'd you think of this? Uh, well, I've always thought it, it's not, it never made sense to me why Nubia, queen Nubia was appointed queen of the Amazons to begin with. That never made sense to me because what experience do you have being a queen when all you've done is guarded, guard doom's doorway? What, what experience do you have being queen of anything? If you're doing, if that's all you've done, uh, but I get it. They 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 needed, uh, you know, they they want to prop up the character and 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 I like Nubia. I just, but she still hasn't had her day yet. Uh, with respect to this story, though, I was a little bit. Uh, it's a little bit off putting. Uh, apparently, her nightmare is is that you know, uh, Nubia came from the Well of Souls, and uh, Nubia because the sort of like the new they they have uh, DC has under Stephanie Williams they revitalized the idea that Amazons become Amazons because the spirits of abused women come through comes they come through the well of souls and they find new life and they're essentially reincarnated to a new life as Amazons on Themyscira so it's kind of that's kind of cool her nightmare apparently though is because because Nubia was was the first Amazon through the well of souls that's her claim to fame that apparently her nightmare is to have all those other souls in the well of souls 
calling for help, saying, don't leave us here. Pull us out of the well of souls. Don't leave us here. You've betrayed us and what have you. And so I can kind of see that a little bit. So um, it's interesting. It sort of plays into Nubia's or origins. Uh, I, I think uh, I think for newer readers, they might not understand the significance of the well of souls in the context of the story vis-a-vis -vis the the its relationship to the origin of Nubia. Uh, but I, th I thought that I thought that Stephanie Williams did a good job doing that uh, because it does make sense given Nubia's character. And yeah, it, uh, you know, it, it, it is actually one of the, probably one of the more interesting of Nubia's stories. And I actually did really like the art as well. The, you, I agree with you on the art by uh, uh, Megan Petrick was, uh, I said that wrong. The art by, uh, Megan met Megan Hetrick. Yes, it, it was. It, yeah, it was very. It was very. It was appropriate for the for the horror story that was being told. No question. Yeah, let's move on. Uh, one of the probably titles that ties in more closely to the main story uh, because it's written by Josh Williamson. Night Terror Superman number two. Uh, Williamson is a writer. Tom Riley on art. Uh, we've got Nathan Fairbairn doing the colors, Ariana Mare on letters. Main cover by Gleb Melnikoff is is fun, uh, but for me, the the one in twenty five by Mikhail Yanin with um, Supergirl crawling through kryptonite was really fantastic. The cover C from John Jang also fantastic, and then Woods uh, cardstock variant one in fifty with uh, with Kryptonians digging up this this old archaeological site with bones of, um, of a doomsday, different doomsday, which is, had been retconned in. Uh, I can't, I think Jurgens did it. I think Dan Jurgens did it. Uh, it's just, it's a heck of a lot of fun. So yeah, I thought, thought it was really, really good. What did you, uh, what'd you think of this? Uh, well, the, the covers, I, I really like the cover and for, for those, I don't know if people might not know this, but, Probably most people know Doomsday's origin, but the idea that Kryptonian archaeologists are digging up Doomsday's bones, if you're wondering how that's even possible, is because Doomsday's origin is that he was he was constantly killed and he evolved by he was he kept being reborn and reborn and reborn. So it makes sense that there's Doomsday's bones somewhere would conceivably be dug up on Krypton at some point. And so it's kind of cool. So even if you're just you know, dare I suggest, even if you're just passively related, uh, familiar with Doomsday's origins, that cover uh, is very interesting. And that cover actually is is even, and I like it. It passes one of my rules for covers. There's, it's, it actually has a relationship with something that happens in the comic, which is kind of cool. It's, a, it's a nightmare, and yeah, I'd imagine digging up Doomsday's bones and having them come to life. That's, that's a nightmare, and. Well, that's one of the scenes that happens, and and that's why I I, I kind of I, I I didn't mind this issue. It was a, it's sort of a flashback uh, to uh, to uh, well part of and what's well, part of I think it's actually part of Kara Kara Zorel Supergirl's nightmare, and she's explaining it to Power Girl, and in her nightmare, her father is you know digs up discovers the bones of Doomsday and is ultimately killed by Doomsday. And of course, she recognizes right away that it must be a nightmare because that's not what happened. And then, and then the dead bones of all the different iterations of Supergirl come to life. And I thought the art was really, really good here. And uh, my apologies, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure who the artist is. You know Tom Riley. Tom Riley. I really like the art. I thought it worked really well. I, 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 
I quite liked it. Uh, the double page spreads. There's a lot of great action here. Uh, Nathan Fairborn on the colors. It was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, and there was a, more than one double page spread. Uh, and the, there's a, I like the double page spread where Aquaman and Mira are arrived on the scene. Uh, I also liked uh, Joshua Williamson. He scripted a pretty uh, convincing comic book explanation as to why the nightmare wave doesn't affect Atlanteans. It's because their 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 ears and their, or their their bodies are so used to the intense pressure of the ocean that that, that a nightmare wave simply can't penetrate their consciousness. And so hey, I, I can buy it. What the hell? And so I like that. And uh, Aquaman and Mira they end up taking Superman to Supercore. Uh, and uh, and they hook him up to machines uh, in an attempt to try to revive him. Meanwhile, one of the um, one of the sleepless nights uh, attacks uh, Aquaman, and of course that that doesn't uh, go over too well for the sleepless night. And meanwhile, Su Superman and uh, Superman and Supergirl are they they go through their their nightmare, and you know not I don't really see you know I. I, I didn't find it that exciting, to be honest with you. It was just sort of, you know, Supergirl inspiring Superman and, and they win the day. And then Superman ultimately wakes up because Mira is successful in in reviving Superman in the in the waking world. And Superman wakes up just in time to help defeat the sleepless night, help Aquaman to sleep the, the, the sleepless night. And then he says, OK, guys, let's go to the Hall of Justice and continue to kick some butt. And that will be continued in night night terrors night's end and so i thought it was yeah it was it was meh but it was good it was one of the better ones i i love the art i i really love the art and the story was interesting I, i'm so glad it's great seeing aquaman there's there's been a consistent or maybe an inconsistent or a consistent sporadic rumor for a while uh, Josh Williamson has stated in the past that he'd love to write Aquaman. So I like to think this is my own hope that, you know, you know, he that maybe he wants to he plans on writing Aquaman at some point. Yeah, I find it curious that Aquaman just shows up here. Uh, maybe there's a reason for that. He's already writing Green Arrow. I'm not saying that we need Joshua Williamson to write Aquaman, but I'm wondering if this isn't some maybe a little bit of a tease to us readers. But I thought it was OK. What do you think? Yeah, I specifically on the Aquaman thing. I, he he came across a little more regal, like the way he spoke, which is interesting, right? Because different writers have had different takes on Aquaman. I think Cullen Bunn probably had him speak that way. That his run wasn't really well received; it was truncated. But you know, you go back to Aquaman feeling a little detached and a little, you know, speaking with the royal we and and. DC's moved him away from actually being the king of Atlantis. He even makes a comment in uh, about you know wearing the crown to to Mira here. Mm -hmm. um, but Joshua, and specifically, I'd say there was a humanity that was brought to Aquaman when the New Fifty Two started from Jeff Johns. I think to try to make him feel a little more relatable, and you know, tongue in cheek, making fun of him, saying talking to fish and what have you. And he goes to a diner and he orders fish, and people are like all aghast. Like it's cannibalism or something. <laughs> so there, there was some humor and some humility and some humanity brought to him by um, by Johns, and now it, it, it almost seems like Williamson's swinging him back the other way. So it's a different voice from Aquaman, one that I, I can't remember really reading um, for a long time, maybe since Peter David's run, uh, and then that that started out that way, and then he sort of became almost this 
gorilla version of himself. That, that was the first time we saw the long hair and the beard. You know, he had the harpoon for a hand uh, to replace a hand that got bitten off by a piranha. Uh, so, yeah, interesting voice that uh, that Williamson brings to Aquaman. And I, yeah, I, would, I would welcome that. I mean, I think Josh's writing enough stuff right now between G.I. Joe and his Dark Ride series over at, uh, at Image as well. And then, uh, you know, any number of DC projects. So I don't know how he would find the time. But, um, yeah, it would be interesting to see. And I do agree. Great explanation of why the uh, Atlanteans aren't affected. Um, so much of what the, was in this issue is, is connective tissue, I feel like, right, to lead us back to the main series more so than some of the others. And, again, it makes sense. Williamson's writing the main story. So it feels like this should tie in a little more completely with it. But you lose some of that weirdness because of that. You lose some of the dynamism of it. Um, but I think that's okay. You know, we had said before, if you're going to read any of the tie-ins, probably Superman and Batman are probably the ones that have felt the most connected. Again, no coincidence. Williamson is, the, you know, the one writing those two. Um, but there is some fun to be had here when we look at you know, Wonder Woman, or uh, Lois Lane rather being attacked by a, a blank page monster, basically a paper monster. <laughs> yeah. Says, oh, you're being attacked by paper. Well, it's the blank page. You know, if you're a writer, that's probably something that causes you anxiety. Uh, and she mentions also another, uh, and this is probably even Williamson, I would guess being a little meta. If you're a writer, you staring at that blank page. It can be intimidating. Uh, yeah. The other thing that Lois mentioned, she goes, like, yeah, before this paper monster, I fought, I, I defeated a deadline monster, right? That's got to be another thing. Knowing you're under deadline for a writer is going to cause some anxiety, uh, maybe a little bit of fear, just because it's stress. It's pressure, right? And that you've got to get it done. So, yeah, there were things like that. Uh, we mentioned, you mentioned the, the doomsday race, if you will, and yeah, the fact that it was found out later in the second series, actually, because Doomsday became such a popular character after killing Superman, Jurgens. I think it was the Hunter-Prey series, it was a three-issue prestige format, square-bound, and that gave the origin of the Doomsday species, and we found out, yes, the Kryptonians themselves, way back when, created them, and yeah, they evolved them much faster than, you know, kind of natural evolution, uh, and yeah, there would be bones on Krypton, so yeah, that was interesting as well. So there's a lot of little nuggets here. It's a chance probably for Williamson to play with things that in you know regular DC continuity he might not get to play with, but that all takes a backseat toward moving the narrative forward for the actual Night Terrors event, getting Superman in place, kind of explaining how everything's going on. If anybody wants to nitpick and say, well, you know, what happened to all the rest of the normal people in the world that everybody fell asleep and you, know, you must have had planes falling out of the sky and all kinds of stuff. And yeah, we find out, well, Aquaman and Mira took it upon themselves to, uh, you know, mobilize the Atlantean people and say, hey, go out there and stop the planes from falling out of the sky and people from dying in surgery and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, a little bit of house cleaning, like you mentioned, it's not the most dynamic way to tell a story, but it makes sense, sort of necessary, um, if you will. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Night Terror's Catwoman number two. This is written by the writer of the regular Catwoman series, Tinny Howard. Layla Louis does the art. Marisa Louise on colors. Josh Reed on letters. Again, some really fantastic covers. We get a uh, one of them where 
Catwoman sort of diving down toward the bottom of the cover and the back of it sort of looks like almost like a stained glass window, but rather than being like stained glass, it's like just a star field. And there's also a black and white version of that cover. So I particularly enjoyed that one. And then the other cover by Tula Lote um, almost feels like a horror mo- uh, um, homage to old school uh, Adam Hughes covers. When Adam Hughes was doing Batwoman covers, it definitely has that Adam Hughes good girl art sort of feel. So, yeah, pretty solid covers on this one. What do you think of the uh, actual issue? Uh, I this was uh, this was actually my my favorite of the Night Terrors this week, and uh, and the reason why is because Teeny Howard. Uh, I thought did a really good job here because she is directly tying Selena Kyle's nightmare into the upcoming Gotham War. And I'm not ruining anything for Gotham War because we know in the upcoming Gotham War what happens. We know that Kat, that Selena, that we know in the upcoming Gotham War, Batman is, we know at the end of, uh, you know this from Solicits, by the way, at the end of uh, Night Terror, Batman's taken off the playing field because he falls asleep for eight weeks. He wakes up, and during those eight weeks, Catwoman has basically taken control of crime in Gotham, and shes that's kind of what she's done. And she has created her own little uh, way of doing things in order to control crime in Gotham, and the crime rate grows down, and it's a very different way of treating the petty thieves and she trains them to get better and 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 she she takes a different approach to dealing with crime and but at the same time still being a criminal in, in Gotham and and but she does it her way and that she comes into conflict with Batman and that's the basic premise of Gotham War. Well on the very first page on the very first page on the very first panel of this Night Terrors Selena says, this isn't my Gotham here. I'm no hero. I'm the ultimate sinner. It was my attempt to control crime that caused this city to fall into worse chaos. That's her nightmare. And we know that in Gotham War, that's exactly what she's trying to do. She's trying to control crime in Gotham. And so when you when you understand that and you read this story, it becomes that much more interesting because now I'm not saying that uh, that this story is going to be reflective of what happens in Gotham War. What this story is, is a reflection of Selena's anxieties and fears about what happens if she were to fail. Because she's very nervous about taking a big step in Gotham. But that's one thing that Teeny Howard's main, main Catwoman proper series has been about. Catwoman has slowly been working her way up to make a move in Gotham. She just basically needs the approval of the Bat family to do it. And that's what Gotham War is all about. And this particular issue is, I like that it's, uh, it involves Sister Zero, her, 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 who is her sister Maggie, uh, who is like a nun. And Selina is training a young Batman in her nightmare here. She's training a young Batman to prepare a young Batman so he can take on a younger Joker who is isn't quite the Joker yet, but is evolving into the Joker, and uh, and I I want to give a credit to the artist Lila Leitz. Uh, there are times here where where she draws Selena, where Selena looks like a young Audrey Hepburn, <laughs> yet with a like with a with a poked out scar on her uh, right side of her eye, and I I I just I just think she looks she looks really sexy, and I thought it was I think the art really works for the story. I enjoyed it anyway, and it just it it worked for me. And 
I like the fact that at the end, you know, in in order to uh, stop stop the Joker, uh, Selena and Batman ultimately end up having to confront. There's uh, speculator alert. I love these two characters. They're called the Toxin Sisters, uh, Najet, uh, or pardon me, Najee and Lachesis, and they're sort of like handmaidens, handmaidens of chaos, <laughs> and and they. They basically uh, attack Batman and Selina, and ultimately Selina gets bitten by a venomous snake, and Batman doesn't have enough venom to protect her, and and Selina dies at the end of the story with Batman professing, confessing, professing his love for her, and Maggie, her sister Maggie, telling her that she'll be remembered as a hero. So, interestingly enough, this is encapsulates all of Catwoman's anxieties and fears about screwing up and trying to protect Gotham, while at the same time, it ends with her sort of being a hero, but unfortunately dying, not fully training Batman, and her sister Maggie sort of being a hero, but she's not around to really enjoy it. And it's interesting that that is the, her dream, and she's having this right in the midst of... A, right before Gotham War is about to begin. And I thought that was really interesting. I, I thought it was well-written and I it just worked for me. And I again, I love the art and I saw, remin- I saw bits and pieces. It was reminiscent of a young Audrey Hepburn in the art and I thought it worked. And it, it, it really went, um, um, uh, it worked for me. And yeah, so... I thought it was uh, one of the better better ones because it had something to say. And kudos to Teeny Howard for actually tying it in thematically or even symbolically in some way to what we know is going to be coming up in Gotham War. So how'd you find it? Oh, no, you're on mute there, buddy. Sorry. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, so it was one of the reasons that I enjoyed the, um, the first issue of, of this so much was the fact that we had a situation where Tinny Howard was writing this and it gave context to her, you know, regular run on the series. And that what hasn't been the case with, you know, a lot of these Night Terrors books. They just, for whatever reason, they just haven't tied in. The, the writers haven't taken advantage, for the most part, of having them tie in. And, it, you know, you could make the argument that maybe Tinny should have, done a better job um, of in her regular run of Catwoman saying, yeah, this is what Catwoman was attempting to do. She was attempting to sort of benevolently, I think was the word that Tinny used in the first issue, um, take control of crime in Gotham city so that you can kind of control it and prevent innocence from being harmed, right? Like keep the, the gang war between the gangs. Only the people that only criminals will be harmed by it. Um, and that was presented in the first issue and was why I, I enjoy it so much. And now you can look, think of it like this. So the first issue of this run from her was focused on what she's done already. And now the second issue of this run, this two issue night terrors tie in is focused on what's to come. Right. Because like you mentioned, there's so much of anxiety over, uh, she made a mistake. She tried to do what she was talking about in the first issue. She tried to be in charge of crime in Gotham so that innocence wouldn't be harmed. You know, who better to, to sort of manage crime and, and manage the criminals in Gotham city than herself, right? Like she's going to do a better job. She's going to 
prevent people that shouldn't get hurt from being hurt. And it clearly didn't work in this reality of her nightmare. Um, so that that's interesting. And like I said, it's you can look at it as two different distinct things. The first issue dealing with what she's focused on in the past. And now the second issue dealing with what's going to come in the future with this Gotham war between her and, um, uh, and Batwoman, you know, that uh, Tinny and uh, Chips at Arsky are going to be writing. So yeah, I find that to be interesting. It's fun. Um, I don't know how you ne- necessarily reconcile it with the fact that these are two people that are supposed to love each other. Uh, but then at the same time, uh, I, and I've said it many times, I'm not somebody who necessarily likes the idea of Batman and Selena being together. Like I, I'm a, I'm a big fan. Let's go Batman and Zatanna. Right. I like that matchup a lot. Um, so anyway, uh, this really works. You're right about the art. It's really dynamic from Leila Louis, Liez, um, especially, especially like, uh, and this is, I feel like this is something that comes sometimes a little later with artists uh, where their actual, the layouts of the page itself um, improves over time because that that's one of the things that I really liked about what's being done here. She has dynamic layouts when it comes to how she's setting up the page, you know, whether it's a montage piece, whether it's uh, diagonal panels, so it's not just that grid, panel breaks where the art actually goes outside of the actual uh, borders of the panel. Um, that's not something that I remember noticing about her art before. Uh, and she's somebody whose art I've, I've uh, kind of been looking at for a few years now. I think she, when she first started, she was doing some work with Aftershock. So uh, yeah, the art is fantastic. I, I love the dynamic. I love that uh, Tinny got to bring in uh, Selena's sister. You know, I imagine with um, Rom V taking her sort of off the table in his Catwoman run, it was probably soon to bring her back, bring Maggie back, bring Sister Zero back in the regular uh, title. So uh, she, I imagine, and I'll ask Tinny, um, when I have her on, she's supposed to be coming on soon. Um, I'll ask her about that. Like, was this purposeful? Like, you took the chance of, hey, this is a nightmare. It's not actual reality to be able to bring in Sister Zero. Because I just really like the dynamic between the two sisters. Um, because they don't agree, right? They don't agree on on the best way to kind of serve the people of Gotham, if you will. Um, you know, one's coming at it from the side of angels and one's coming at it from the side of devils, if you will. Uh, I think... Catwoman even uses the term devil several times in this story. Uh, but despite that, there's not there's not hatred, there's not animosity, there's not any sort of feeling between the two of them that comes across other than the fact that they really love each other and they want the best for each other, although they fundamentally disagree on, you know, the best way to um, help Gotham. To improve Gotham City, yeah, to, to, <laughs> to really manage. Uh, and again, it's a dream, so this is... Um, this is, I guess, what you consider Selena's perception of how her sister thinks that you should act in the best interest of Gotham City. So that that's really interesting to me as well. Uh, all right, moving on. The last Night Terrors book uh, is Punchline number two. This is from Danny Lohr. Lucas Meyer handles the art. Alex Squirmus on colors. Steve Wands on letters. Uh, when we talk about the... Again, the uh, covers for this, really fantastic. I think the main cover by Gleb Melnikoff is my favorite, but I particularly like the black and white version uh, because it doesn't have the trade dress. And you can see 
much better than on the tombstone. So the, if you're not watching this on YouTube and you can't see the uh, the graphic there, she's punchline is crawling out of the ground. She's digging herself out of her grave, and on the tombstone behind her, it just says "Bye." <laughs> I just love that. So <laughs> yeah, this was uh, this one was a lot of fun. What did you think of this issue? I I well. I feel that we. I still don't feel we know Punchline in well enough that she she deserves to have her own nightmare issue. To be honest with you, this I. But now that's that's just my opinion. I she's not a developed enough character to be honest. Now having said that, on the other hand, the counterpoint to what I just said is well, what a perfect opportunity to get to know something about Punchline by getting into her head and finding out what her nightmare is. And fine, I'll grant you that. But then. If I'm brutally honest, I'm disappointed in this issue because it doesn't quite go far enough. Now, uh, but I feel like I have to come to the defense of Danny Lore, the writer Danny Lore, because I think he does he does make an attempt and he makes a very valiant attempt to do a good job here. And it kind of works because I personally have always felt and is that to me, Punchline is somebody who... I think that she's she's not particularly skilled. She's she shouldn't be as skilled as she is. She has always come across as a Mary Sue to me. She shouldn't have the fighting skills she does. She shouldn't have the intelligence she does in order to take over the the uh, Royal Flush Gang. Uh, but uh, but yet here we are. She shouldn't have the intelligence to be on par with uh, Catwoman. Uh, that she she should even be able to hold her own against Catwoman, let alone Harley Quinn, let alone any. None of that makes any sense. She's the, basically a nineteen twenty year old college student that the joker i guess I, I assume slept with but didn't sleep with we don't know we should know the answer to these questions but we don't but okay fine i don't know what the hell about to think about punchline but what's her nightmare well she i like that danny lore ex, has the, the symbolism of social media in this that's what i like is that it is he hints that punchline's nightmare is being forgotten it, it hints that you know she she's unsuccessful on social media that she that she can be shut out you know she says i can't even hear the gasping panic breathing sounds i know i should be making i am left with nothing but the memory of watching a glowing screen in a dark room judgments opinions voices none of them mine all of them taking root in my mind uh and that there's an infinite number of scrolling comments almost as if you know, this social media, she, she made a name for herself on social media. She actually successfully defended herself and got away with murder because of her manipulation of social media. And so it's interesting that maybe part of her nightmare is losing control of social media, of having social media sort of sort of take over her. And at the end, she manages to escape her nightmare by by uh, essentially uh, elec electrocuting a uh, and a robotic version of Oracle slash Batgirl, and then actually literally click, she clicks a like, a giant like button, <laughs> and then clicks the off, the X button, the off button, <laughs> to uh, that we would see an X on, a, on the upper right portion of our computer screen. She has to push that in her dream to wake up. And so I like that Danny Lore had that, because 
I, I thought that that was a good job because I've always sort of thought that in some capacity, in some way, that to me is when Punchline is the most interesting. I don't see her as a mobster. I don't see her as a crime. Like, I don't see her as a mafioso godmother. That's nonsense. I think she should be an agent of chaos more directly linked with social media. I think she should be more of a of an insane Harley Quinn with no with no anti-hero side, all evil and more manipulative of social media than ever before. And in that respect, her being rejected by the very medium upon which she should be an expert in, I thought was very appropriate. Uh, so kudos to Danny Lore for doing that. He did a better job than I thought he could, but in defense of Danny Lore, I think he was handed probably one of the more difficult assignments, quite frankly, because this is a largely underdeveloped character that I don't think has been developed particularly well. I'm not a huge fan with what Teeny Howard did with her with the Royal Flush Gang. So all in all, I was I actually was I was reasonably impressed by Danny Lore, who I think is making is making a name for himself. DC keeps giving him projects and he's doing his best. He clearly knows he knows the characters and the materials and he he, he always comes out whenever we review his work. Uh, I'm always impressed that he's, you know, he, he's bringing his A game and he, he keeps getting better. So overall, I didn't mind it. What do you think? Uh, so Danny Lore, born female, identifies as non-binary uh, now. I, I apologize. So they, I, they, I did not yep, know that. Okay. Yep, yep. So they, them. So I want to make they, that them. clear. Yeah, I've them several times there. Super talented. I've done a lot of independent work, and they're doing a, a fantastic job as they're getting more and more DC work, uh, like you mentioned. So um, they're pretty good friends with uh, Vida Ayala, who is someone else whose work I, I really admire. <laughs> they both seem to bring out the trolls, if you uh, know what I mean. So the, I was really impressed with this issue. First of all, I thought the art was was fantastic we start getting really esoteric by lucas meyer here that's someone else uh whose work i really admire i think um i think i first saw his work on uh x-men he's doing x-men and i think it was a project i want to i want to say that uh or a title that leah uh, leah williams was writing and she's another uh part of that group <laughs> good friends with vita and and danny so yeah, a lot of talent in that group for sure. So anyway, I really enjoyed it seeing this sort of larger than life uh, sort of digital space, if you will, it kind of re reminded me of Tron in terms of uh, you know, not necessarily the visual with all dark and you know glowing lights or whatever, but more in terms of being a small person sucked into a, a you know or a person from the real world sucked into a digital world. Uh, and you yeah, you hit the nail on the head when. You talk about punchline. I, you know, I've never cared for the character. I, I've talked about it a lot. How I just, just she just doesn't work for me. Um, and and maybe it's just sort of my cynicism in, in the fact that it's a little too real, right? It's a it's a little too much of a case where you could see people on social media falling in love and falling for the the bullshit, for lack of a better term, that uh, this Alexis Faye, I think is is her name. Yeah. Um, Alexis K, I think it is. Yeah, yeah Alexis K, Faye K, something like that. Yeah, um, yeah you, you could see her hoodwinking people on social media, right? You could see them buying in. It's, it's, all, too, it's all too real when you, you look at the state of the world and the, the false things that people will believe in just because they see it on a website or what have you. So, yeah, it's, I think that's part of the reason I don't like it. But it, it does make sense here, and you're right that Danny – maybe had the toughest assignment because 
punchline has been so two-dimensional and hasn't has been a little bit inconsistent in terms of characterization um and i i sort of feel like you know as, as much as i'm a giant fan of uh of james tynan and, and what he's been able to accomplish i just don't think that punchline's a very good character at her foundation like her yeah. her origin doesn't necessarily make sense like just seem to kind of snap out of nowhere and and kill her roommate and whatever. So, yeah, it's been it was been a little in- yeah, it yeah it's been a little it's been a little inconsistent. It hasn't really worked for me on a lot of levels. So yeah, Danny had a tough assignment. They made it work really really well uh, for a lot of the reasons that you said. This idea of her losing control of social media and again, it's not a fear. And you certainly see that when she wakes up and she's ready to you know start kicking ass again. Um, she's like, yeah, let's go you know find out what the hell is going on. It's not a fear, but it is a concern. It is an anxiety because social media sort of brought her to where she is, head of the Royal Flush Gang, which, you know, again, I have mixed feelings on the success of that punchline series from uh, from Tinny and Blake Howard. But that was one thing, putting her in charge of the Royal Flush Gang, that, that works. That makes sense to me because the Royal Flush Gang has, al- has always been a bit of a joke as well. And regardless um, whether you yeah, think Alexis – they, they fought the Justice League under Bendis. Yeah. <laughs> they, fought the, they, fought, they have fought the Justice League many times, but regardless of that, um, they're, yeah, they're sort of a joke, and you could see, you know, whether we can argue whether or not Punchline's a good character or not, but you certainly can't argue that she's got um, a forceful personality. There's a lot there in terms of her personality, and so I think on that level, yeah, she's going to work. And so uh, having Punchline be in charge of the Royal Flush Gang it works on that level as well. So I think that that was a good choice um, that, that, uh, that DC made. So yeah, there's a lot to like here. Um, I don't know how much tying um, punchline into the, this Oracle, this version of Oracle that's, uh, that's digital or what have you. I don't know how much sense that makes, but for the most part, I think this, this book really worked. Um, for me and and yeah kudos to danny for doing a, a great job uh all right up next we have uh something that i i have a feeling that you really enjoyed rocky uh it's batman superman world's finest number 18 we both have really really been enjoying this series um again we're, we're flashing back here the origin of the world's finest team phantom riddles part one Written by Mark Wade, Travis Moore is the artist, Tamara Bonvillan on colors, Steve Wands on letters. And this purports to be the first meeting, the story of the first meeting of Batman and Superman. Uh, for now, I guess, <laughs> you know, we could go back and we could break it down how many times they've met for the first time. But um, maybe I'll look those up while you uh, give us your thoughts on the series. Well, one of the things that Mark Wade is doing is that he is. He is, in many ways, recreating the Silver Age for the modern age. And what I mean by that is, and we saw him do this in World's Finest Teen Titans, where, you know, he's basically the Teen, the, the teen Titans, when they were first became Teen Titans, that was about 10 years ago. Well, 10 years ago, we had iPhones. 
10 years ago, we had smartphones. And so, you know, for older readers like you and I, Jace, when we think of Teen Titans, we think of the 80s and 90s and we where they didn't have iPhones and social media and what have you. Well, this is different. Mark Wade is basically updating what were essentially Silver Age stories, but he's making new Silver Age stories, but in the modern age. And that's what he's doing by recreating the first when Superman and Batman first met, well, that was probably 10 years ago, too, or maybe 10 or 12 or whatever, 15, however you want to do it. But the bottom line is, is that it is more of a modern world than it was in maybe older world's finest stories that came out in the 90s and 80s and 70s or in the past in the Silver Age. And so uh, I thought this was this was really refreshing. I enjoyed this. Uh, I don't I see this probably being on. This certainly is a candidate for for pick of the week. I mean, I, I enjoyed this. It, this is this is Batman and Superman meeting for the first time. Uh, Superman's heard of Batman. Batman certainly heard of Superman. And uh, basically, this involves uh, this involves uh, Caper by the by the Riddler. And uh, the clue is written. It's a riddle, but it's written in Kryptonese. And Clark Kent comes across this crime that was committed in Gotham and Superman ends up visiting ends up visiting Commissioner Gordon for the first time. You can imagine the expression on Commissioner Gordon's face. He's used to Batman being on a roof. He's not, you know, or maybe Batman at, at times making himself at home, working into the making his way into Gotham City Police Department. He's not used to Superman showing up out of the blue, dressed in blue, red and yellow, and boom. Um and Superman's there because he wants to. He's curious because it's written in Kryptonese, and and of course Batman's on the outs. Batman's on the outside of the police of the Gotham City Police Department. It was it was a wonderfully choreic, uh, paced uh, scene, and the dialogue is fantastic. Mark Wade knows these characters. He's excellent at pacing and structure and all that jazz. I mean, this the, he could write these stories in his sleep. And uh, what I like what Mark Wade does here is. He doesn't write Batman like a jerk or an a-hole. And he doesn't write ba Superman that way. Superman is respectful of Batman, even though he knows he's a vigilante. Superman doesn't come across as holier than thou. Even Batman is fairly respectful of Superman. Uh, there is the, the usual type of banter back and forth about their, you know, Bat Superman doesn't want to reveal his secret identity. But at the same time, Batman kind of already knows it because he's been keeping tabs on Superman and he just makes certain inferences based on how Superman sounds, his dialect. Uh, he tracks him with his satellite, you know, so he likely figures out where he works. He's likely Midwestern American, et cetera, et cetera. All that stuff you expect Batman to do, all of that's in here. If you're a first-time reader or you're a new reader, Heck, or if you're a long-time Riddler like you and I, there's something to enjoy here. Uh, we, we not only have Riddler who's being manipulated by a Kryptonian criminal who's managed somehow to escape, we assume, from the Phantom Zone. Uh, uh, we have Magpie showing up out of the blue. Superman making an appearance, of course, in Gotham City, sopping Magpie. Batman showing up. And this th this just works. Uh, Alfred uh, meeting Bruce Wayne, pardon me, Alfred meeting Superman for the first time. Clark Kent meeting Bruce Wayne for the first time in their, their different iterations. Everything really works here. And this is all in, I got to say for, I mean, I'm just counting the pages. Uh, the total amount of pages comes to, I, I think it was like 30 pages. I thought this worked really well. And uh, Jaxer being the, the big reveal as uh, as the you know he's a Kryptonian criminal. Jaxer being the one that was one of the three Phantom Zone criminals originally uh, 
sent to the Phantom Zone. For him to show up like this uh, when they track down the Riddler, I mean, what what a great cliffhanger. And it ends up that Batman is ends up in the Phantom Zone at the end. I mean, Mark Wade, what a fantastic cliffhanger. I honestly had no idea what, what Kryptonian villain would be working with Riddler. I didn't guess Jack, sir. He had me on the edge of my seat. I, I, I was glued to this comic till I got to the final page. And this worked. So it's, it's, it's another success, another great story by Mark Wade. So what you, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I was thinking, okay, here we go, Zod, right? Breaking out yeah. of the Phantom Zone. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Jack, sir, was a nice surprise. I was glad it wasn't Zod. Again, we'll talk about Big Bads in a little bit here. So that was fun. It was great to see the Travis Moore art. Uh, don't get me wrong. I would have loved if Dan Mora had done it as well. The Dan Mora cover where it's, you know, half of Superman's face and half of Batman's face is fantastic. There's also a Derek Robertson cover that's really, really awesome. Uh, a lot of the non-Night Terrors books have Blue Beetle uh, covers to celebrate the the movie being released. And the Blue Beetle cover from, I think it's... Uh, yeah, Raphael Albuquerque is really fantastic as well. Mm. So, yeah, love the art, love the action. Uh, yeah, there have been any number of first meetings of Superman and Batman over the years, going back to, I think the first one was like back in the Golden Age. Uh, and it was uh, a situation where they were shown in a comic for the first time and they were raising money for war bonds, I think. It was way back in 1952 in Superman 76. Uh, and they had known each other for a long time, so it wasn't the first meeting. So then later on, we got the story of them first meeting, and that was in World's Finest number 84 um, with art by Kurt Swan, which is really fantastic. And then over the years, obviously other writers have decided, hey, let's do it uh, again when Superman was rebooted in 1985-86 by John Byrne, that Man of Steel issue three. It's a very famous sequence where um, – Batman and Superman meet for the first time. Robin is there as well. And Robin, you know, starstruck and asks for Superman's autograph. And Superman picks up like this little piece of metal. They're, they're on a rooftop and there's like this little square of metal that's laying there or whatever. And he picks it up. And instead of like signing his name or using his heat vision, he uses his fingernail and he like scratches Superman into it, right? Because even his uh, fingernails, indestructible, what have you, and hands it to, to Robin. And yeah, it's just a really really fun uh, first meeting from these two with great John Bernhardt. So I appreciate that, you know, maybe that doesn't count anymore and who knows what's actually canon for their first meeting. And you know, it doesn't matter because this is just a fun story. And particularly what I loved seeing from the Travis Moore art is Batman in the gray and blue costume, (laughs) not the one color, the monocolor Jim Lee costume where everything looks a little more, tactical or what have you, or as much as I love Lee Bermejo, you know, that's more of a, a realistic take on, you know, if Batman were real, this is what his costume would look like. No, this is blue with the front of the cowl being black, you know, like the super friends cartoon and the, the utility belt is yellow and there's no little spotlight behind the bat symbol. It's just a black bat. Um, you know, the blue trunks or whatever, like this is the Batman of my childhood. And I, yeah, I just really enjoyed it. And I love the dynamic between the the two, um, the two heroes, right? Like they don't necessarily, they starts off as you would expect. Batman, very suspicious of Superman, has been tracking him all along. Superman being very trusting. Um, 
but but not knowing much about who Bruce Wayne is, uh, Bruce Wayne deducing right away that Superman can't the fact that he's been tracking him and it he sees his flight patterns. He sees he goes to the Daily Planet. He goes to a certain apartment building. All Batman has to do is cross reference. Okay, who lives in this apartment building that works at the Daily Planet? Like yeah, easily solved. A very naive Superman. Hey, villains could be doing this as well. You should be a little more careful. Um, so yeah, really interesting, really fun. And I like that um, these world finest stories get to jump around. It doesn't have to be set in, in current canon or even current continuity um, or current time. You know, just read it and enjoy it for the fact that it's a good story. And we know Mark Wade's having a ton of fun doing the, this series because he's told me as much in person. So, <laughs> uh, all right. Up next, we have Hot Girl number two. This is written by Jadzia Axelrod, drawn by MK Nahelipan. Colored by Adriana Lucas, lettered by Hassan Otsman Elhal. The Whipping Girl. Uh, so we've got plenty of Hawk Girl, uh, Kendra Saunders. We've got plenty of Galaxy, um, the next star, who's this alien hero that lives in Metropolis as well, that uh, Jadzia Axelrod created as well. Um, and this, this, I'm enjoying this. Okay? The, the art from Nehelipan is absolutely fantastic. I love the fact there's a talking corgi. Um but it is a little bit there's there's a couple things about it that that aren't as good as they could be i'll say there's potential there right like the first is is the narrative this is pretty wordy and axelrod is not the most veteran creator so i'll cut her some slack uh and i imagine that an economy of words is something that they'll work on and it's not just in terms of um of the dialogue, the scripting for the characters. I mean, there's a couple of times where even Kendra herself get, gets really wordy when explaining things to um, to Galaxy. And I guess you can kind of take it with a grain of salt. Galaxy is an alien. She doesn't always understand, you know, context and, um, and the way things work, you know, on Earth. She is an alien. So, uh, and she's not that familiar with the fact that Kendra's had all these past lives and reincarnation and that sort of thing. So you kind of give it a pass, but, even the villain, um, she is uh, Volpecula. I think it's how you pronounce it. Volpecula. Um, <laughs> like, man, I won't say terrible name for a villain, but don't give something that's so hard. To I mean, it must mean something in some other language, I'm guessing. But yeah, it's not something that really rolls off the tongue where you, you, you want to create this new villain everybody's going to use. Give her a name that is easy to say or easy to know how to say or what have you but anyway even she is very wordy so it's just it's a very wordy book um and you gotta i think let the art do a little bit more of the heavy lifting here so there's that issue when characters are talking but then even on top of that there's like narrative boxes right there's expositional boxes that show up a lot and again the art is fantastic and you're covering it up with all these words um now i'm not saying that when you read it, it feels like it drags. It actually, it, it's paced very well. And when you read it, you, you know, you don't feel like, oh my God, it's so much to read. But it's more as it's visually presented, you realize, God, there's a lot of words on this page. There's a lot of words on the next page. There's a lot, you know, so I just think there's, you got to figure out a way to tell the story without so much dialogue, without so much exposition. So that's, that's one thing that I think can be um, improved upon. The other thing is, uh, it feels a little paint by the numbers here, right? Like early on, you know, we, we learned last issue and it was a, it was a, a 
good um, example of how to do a first issue and make it new reader friendly, but also in introducing this new villain and kind of explaining, we don't, I don't know that we understand necessarily why she wants to get to this nth metal dimension so badly. It was her motivation from the first time we saw her on the page. Um, but we did see her failure to do that in the first issue and her continuing failure to do that in this issue. And she mentions, well, you know, I need, I need to find a way to, because she keeps kidnapping these people who she had given trinkets to and granted wishes to and infused with nth metal when they were children. Um, and now they've grown up with this nth metal, basically, uh, you know, she gives them like little medallions or little talismans that they wear on a necklace around their neck their entire lives. And basically as their body grows, they sort of, their whole body becomes infused with nth metal because they have this talisman. So she, in a way they become like these miniature nth metal batteries or factories, if you will, but none of it is enough. The first issue she tries to use just one person to open a portal to the nth metal dimension doesn't work. Um, and now she goes and gets twins that she gave these talismans to in the second issue. And even using two of them, it's nowhere near enough. And she realizes I need like thousands of these nth metal infused people in order to, to open the portal. And, and so right away, we're like, you just told us the story. You just sold it to us right there. Right. Like, meanwhile, Kendra's over here being haunted by all these different uh, previous versions of herself that are talking to her and, uh, and bothering her and won't leave her alone and what have you. And she's struggling with that. So it's like, you might as well have just come right out and said what you're going to do because it's so obvious. Right. So I don't know if there was a, a more subtle way to do it. So, you know, connect the dots, this Volpecula is going to go and, um, and hunt down Kendra because Kendra is, technically has access to, you know, all her hundreds of past lives. That's exactly what this person needs to open the portal and that sort of thing. So yeah, it was, I mean, I know I, I'm being a little bit hypocritical, right? Cause I complain when they drag out the story too long and they, throw a mystery in our face and beat us over the head with it issue after issue after issue uh, and don't give us an answer. It becomes annoying. Um, but here it was like, we, you didn't leave anything to the imagination. Like right away you were like, okay, this is what's happening. Um, I don't know. It just felt a little bit too on the nose to me, but uh, I'm curious. I haven't seen too many people talking about this title. I know Hawkman, Hawk Girl is not the most well-known and doesn't have the biggest fan base, but I thought I would hear more about it. And I haven't heard anything. I haven't heard anybody talking about this. So yeah. I'm curious to see how this will be received. Maybe I'm being overly critical. Uh, I want this to be good, maybe is why I, um, I'm kind of pointing out a few of the things that didn't work for me. But, you know, I say all that to, to say this is enjoyable. I do like the voice and the, the personality that um, – that Axelrod is giving to Kendra Saunders, but that comes from a place of not being as familiar with her. I didn't, haven't read any of that justice society stuff um, that where Jeff Johns was writing her. I know Rocky, you did. And so, yeah, you were a little more critical of her personality and felt like she, she wasn't necessarily like it's the first issue. She was acting a little out of character. I think you mentioned that in your review. So what did you think here of the second issue? Well, uh, I should clarify. I mean, it's very obvious to me that this is clearly a Kendra. This is a Kendra Saunders that's being scripted differently, and she's going in a completely different direction, her char character, than than I would prefer. Uh, but I get it. Uh, there's a particular demographic that they want to cater to here. That's fairly obvious, uh, given the given the LGBT content, and uh, if and given that the the story here has potential in, in one respect. 
And that is what I find interesting, but I'll be, I'll say it in a critical way. I mean, normally Kendra Saunders has past lives and she remembers her past lives. But if you're suddenly going to say that she now is experiencing a disassociative states and she's got all her past lives talking to her in her head, that's not reincarnation. That's schizophrenia. That's a mental illness. This is a very different set of circumstances than Kendra Saunders being able to access memories of past lives. No, this is something where if she's experiencing and a dissociative state, and she is, because that's what Galaxy tells her. Galaxy is saying, you're, be, you're, you're in a dissociative state. And then Galaxy has to use her energy-absorbing powers to somehow calm down Kendra's state of mind so that Kendra stops literally hallucinating images of her past life self. And she's, she's so frustrated that she's literally telling multiple versions of her past lives to leave me alone. That's a mental illness. This woman should be in Arkham. <laughs> I mean, come on. She, she's, you don't leave this woman. I mean, put her in, she needs to see a psychiatrist immediately. Uh, now, okay, maybe, if, am I being really critical? Yes, I am. Okay, let me hold myself accountable. Okay, well, Galaxy helps cure that a little bit. And so, okay, so I would just say to Axelrod, maybe downplay the disassociative aspect of it because that's mental illness. That, that's a serious, serious problem in my view. And that's something that you really got to get a handle on. Now, one thing I really, really like that I want to give Axelrod full props for. There is a beautiful sequence at the end where Kendra Saunders, she's dancing on the dance floor because Galaxy and her friends want to get Kendra out to relax. And there's a beautiful sequence where she's dancing and 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 uh, the art, you can see in the background that Kendra can't stop thinking about all her past lives and her past iterations of her past lives are dancing beside her. But the more she dances, the more that they disappear. So she's having fun. You get a sense that Kendra Saunders is having fun and can be herself, genuinely herself for the first time. And she's no longer, her thoughts are no longer dominated with the thoughts of her past lives. And, and there's a beautiful sequence of four panels and at the, and the bottom fourth panel, all her lives, her past lives have disappeared and it's just Kendra. It's a beautiful moment. It works. And I want to give full props to Axelrod. That actually saves this issue for me. Because it's like, ah, okay, I get it now. She's so, so this is maybe less of a mental illness. So I start off being really hard on her. And by the time I got to the end of the issue, it's such a beautiful scene that I like that. That this is Kendra Saunders. She's really just, she wants to, she needs to learn to love herself first. Because Kendra Saunders, if all she thinks about when she thinks of herself are a, a myriad of different lives, well, when is she actually thinking about herself, loving herself, caring for herself, as opposed to a different iteration of herself? That's the big question. And I think that ties in nicely, and you alluded to it. I won't elaborate on it about with a vel Velpucula, whatever, <laughs> wanting to use her to maybe uh, access the nth world. I think that's, uh, I think that's, I think that's interesting. I agree it's too wordy. The issue is too wordy. She's need to, she needs to cut back on the dialogue. A lot of thi she there's a lot of unnecessary exposition. But for the most part here, I, I think that the character work that Axelrod is doing, I think it's it's I, I can see her intention of where she's going with it, and I think this storyline has potential. Yeah, again, another book with some fantastic covers. The B cover by Derek Chu is amazing. Uh, and this has the single best um, Blue Beetle 
movie variant from Kari Andrews that's so good. Yeah. So good. I haven't seen the Blue Beetle movie yet. I actually looked today. I was thinking about maybe going tonight. I specifically wanted to go see it at the Cinemark because I guess Cinemark has uh, a bug, basically. You know, the the little mechanical thing that Ted Korg flies around in. (laughs) And that's a popcorn bucket that you can get. Yeah, it looks awesome. I saw it. It's only at Cinemark. The Cinemark, there is one Cinemark here. It's not that close to me. It's like 45 minutes away. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, maybe it's late tonight. I'll just go and be tired tomorrow. Uh, and they're not even playing Blue Beetle. Like maybe they, maybe it came and went there already. I don't know. But I was so bummed. So anyway, that cover's awesome. Uh, and if any listeners out there want to send, has a, have a Cinemark close and you got a popcorn bucket you don't want, you want to send it to me, and I'd be forever in your debt. Uh, anyway, I don't know how much we're going to have to say about this because it is a reprint, but it's the Penguin Zero from writer Chip Zdarsky. Belen Ortega is the artist. Luis Guerrero on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. I got a chance to meet Belen at uh, San Diego Comic-Con. She was amazing, super lovely, super talented. A um, little hard to understand. She does have a pretty thick, thick accent. I think she's from Spain. Um, but she was just a pleasure to talk to. I got to take my picture with her. Uh, so anyway, this leads into the, the Penguin series that's coming up. Um, and this basically collects the, the reprints that we had as backups in the back of Batman. I appreciated that collected this. I had forgotten some of the things that happened here. I was like, did I read this? Specifically the first chapter, I was like, I don't remember reading this. Um, but then as we get, got along, uh, we get the executor and what have you, then I, I, I definitely remembered uh, what happened and Selena going to meet um, – Cobblepot, Oswald Cobblepot in Metropolis as a florist and what have you. I remember that as well. I remembered uh, these two children that they didn't necessarily know about. Um, what are their names? Aiden and uh, I can't remember. Uh, Addison. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, again, this isn't new, but I'm glad they collected it. If you didn't read those backups in Batman, um, you can get them all here. And the art from Belen is absolutely amazing. The color work is very, very good as well. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to this, yeah. uh, this penguin story. Luis Guerrero does the colors. Yeah. Um, I can't, I'm trying to remember, uh, who, who's writing the, the regular penguin series. It's Tom King, right? Yes, it is. Yes. And I yeah. was just going to say that, uh, I, I've read the first issue of penguin number one by Tom King and it, it flows actually very nicely from this compilation from this penguin zero uh, Tom King picks up – it's actually consistent. It picks up nicely with with this. It's consistent with this uh, collection of the Penguin backups that were in Batman. So it actually – I might very well pick up this Penguin Takes Flight because I like it because it's – it should have been its own one-shot to begin with and not been a backup in the pages of Batman because all that did was give an excuse to charge more for the comic book and I end up buying it again anyway. So – but that's yeah. my frustration. But <laughs> Yeah, look at you reading ahead. It is – it comes out next week, everybody. So he's not, he's not reading that far ahead. But, man, I, I barely have time to read the books for this week and there you are reading. <laughs> so anyway, any other thoughts on Penguin Zero before we move on? Uh, no, just uh, just that I, I do recommend it because it is good. It's uh, because the you know the penguin supposedly dies, 
but we know he's still alive and it's it's he has a will and he's got children and it's uh it's it's catwoman been been hired to sort of uh locate the beneficiaries of the penguin and it's it's actually a pretty cool premise cool story and the way it ends flows right nicely into penguin number one so i do recommend that people pick it up i don't think i think you won't be disappointed i think if you're a fan of the penguin or if you just like a good story you'll like it and you'll want to pick up tom king number one penguin uh yeah what is it with uh chip Zdarsky and writing batman stories with robot I, again not batman but catwoman it's batman adjacent right catwoman we got penguin we got uh the under under broker and here we go with another you know just like fail safe we got another <laughs> robot here i guess technically ex- executor showed up first um yeah. and then uh fail safe later but yeah what's with all the robots chip uh anyway speaking of awesome covers icon versus hardware number four is up next written by reggie hudlin and leon chills pencils by a number of people uh atiguin ilhan his pages are inked by wade von grabager we have dennis cowan his pages are inked by john stanisey and then uh yasmin flores montanez who inks herself and then colors by uh chris sotomayor and annual design handles the letters uh, but I think we mentioned Brainiac earlier. We're going to be talking about him a lot here, here coming up uh, in these next couple of books. Um, the main cover is awesome, right? Like with the pink of Brainiacs, the three lights, the Brainiac symbol, if you will, with uh, icon and hardware there sort of being bathed in this pink light. Uh, and then there's a, a second one where, again, the three, the idea of three and pink and what have you with icon, rocket, and hardware being trapped in um, these capsules, trapped by Brainiac. But then the third cover, the 1950s variant, which is an homage to the very first appearance of Brainiac in Action Comics. And I want to say it's Action Comics number 254, but don't don't quote me on that. I, I know it's <laughs> it's at, it's it's one of those issues. It's sort of at the top of my list for books I wish I owned and should have bought before. COVID made comics go absolutely insane because now it's probably out of my price range. Um, but it's an homage and it's, I can't, I probably will never be able to afford or, or can't justify spending all that money on, um, on the actual first appearance of Brainiac, but you know, maybe this can be the next closest thing. Uh, but it's just, it's fantastic. Uh, one of the things I'll say, I'm actually going to let you talk about this first, but one of the things I will say is, I had to sort of rack my brain. There's this one's had some delays and I don't know if it's because they have three different artists working on the title or what, but I, I, I hate the fact that this has had delays because as I say all the time, no quicker way to rob a story of momentum and you know, my desire to read it than me not even remembering that this was coming out because of the delays. So uh, that being said, I did enjoy this issue, but what are your thoughts on it? I, I thought, I, I mean, I hate to say this because I really like the. Uh, I thought it was an interesting premise, but um, I, I thought it was very sloppy. It felt very, very sloppy. One thing about this entire story, the, the premise of this Icon V Hardware, I mean, it was time travel. And you and I said it on the f- opening issue. It was sort of it was shocking that hardware would be so stupid as to think he would tra- that he's going to travel back in time and, and change the past. And because obviously that's going to cause chaos and well, that's exactly what it does. So last issue, what hardware did is that the entire issue essentially consisted of hardware traveling into the past and talking to, uh, well, I guess 
or into the future and talking to a future version of himself or an alternate timeline version of himself to basically talk his other self into, you know, not changing time and not eliminating slavery, for example. It's it's uh, one of the things that's very, very obvious here is this is this deals right with like um, a black history. Quite frankly, the the downturn, slavery, how how the how the uh, African American community has been sort of put down, and what uh, what I find I I do find interesting is the fact that when Icon and Hardware they're they're dealing with the remnants, the time remnants, uh, and the chaos that flows from from time being corrected, while them and and the and the and the syndicate they're all they're all basically trying to to battle that. Uh, and they're battling dinosaurs and and static is taking taking out the the third reich the 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 ss soldiers marching in front of his home i mean we got we got we got you know genghis we got good lord we got uh, joseph stalin vlad the impaler king genghis khan uh and uh, we got some future dinosaur like transformer like creatures and so all of this cr- Arising, we can only assume because of this chaos caused by hardware trying to change time. Well, hardware expresses uh, regret that he did that, and I do find I, I like that some of the other characters wish that he would have changed time, and they thought it was kind of cool that he went back and eliminated slavery. But as he stated, that when you did that, you just create the butterfly effect, and despite your best intentions, you you, you know you can create you can make things actually worse, and that's ultimately what ended up happening. But it was still kind of cool to see Static take out a bunch of Nazis. And there's a, there's some fun moments here that I, I think, you know, I enjoyed this. It's the oddest thing. This felt really sloppy, but damn if I didn't enjoy the art. And you know what? It's It reminded me back in the day when I was when younger reading comics where the, so, much inf- so much story is crammed into one issue. So much story. In the, and this is only like the fourth issue. It's it's a lot of fun, and you know it reminded me of the days when I was younger, where I had to fill in all the little blanks with my own headcanon, and I enjoyed doing it. And I can imagine I can get frustrated with hardware being so maybe foolish for thinking he could change time, but yet at the same time, it's kind of cool that he tried it. Icon, Icon, and him teaming up at the end uh, because Brainiac sees what they're doing. And Brainiac from Earth Designate Zero, so from the the Brainiac from the mainstream DC universe that we'd normally see in the pages of Superman, that we have seen in the pages of Superman, who who has the bottle city of Zarnia, that same Brainiac is now aware of Earth 93 because Earth 93 is the milestone universe where Icon and Hardware are, and they've just tried to manipulate time, and Brainiac sees what they've done because in Icon in, in Earth 93, Superman never existed because he was killed when he was younger. And Brainiac never existed. The Kaluan race, of which Brainiac is part of, was wiped out by uh, Icon's race. They were defeated in an intergalactic war. And so that's got the attention of Brainiac. And so it's kind of cool. So now Brainiac is going to Earth 93. For what purpose? We're not really sure. But we, he knows that Icon is just as powerful, if not more powerful than Superman. And um, yeah, so we got, we're headed towards a pretty significant uh, altercation here at some point. And, and yet at the end, I'm, I'm more excited about Brainiac showing up and fighting Icon and hardware. And then at the end, we got, we got Rocket and 
these other characters going back to her school in Switzerland, confronting her her bullies, which I just felt was so out of place in the storyline. I don't know why that aspect of the story was even there because I don't care about it. I care more about Icon and Hardware and all these people fighting Brainiac. And yet we have these girls f- following Rocket back to her school, fighting fighting her classmates. I thought that was sort of out of place. So like I say, it's, it's kind of a little eclectic and odd. And yet, goddamn, if the if the main plot doesn't interest the hell out of me, and I'm, I'm invested in this story, even though it is a little wonky. So what do you think? Yeah, that's the best word for it, right? Wonky. It almost felt like two issues. Like the first half of the issue is basically everybody calling hardware an idiot and him going, yeah. And it's funny, right? Because he'll take it from some people. Like Icon tells him he's an idiot. He sort of takes it. Rocket, he, he takes it, but he's a little more, uh, you know, an, antagonistic against it. If any of the Blood Syndicate call him an idiot for going back, and then he's like, no, 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 you can't call me an idiot. He knows, he knows what he did was wrong. But what's interesting is, you know, as much as he made a mistake going back in time or whatever, Blood Syndicate's like, well, that was a dumb thing to do, but that's because you just did it wrong. Give us the power and we'll go back and <laughs> yeah. do it the right way. You know? We'll do it Which, the right way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fantastic characterization for these young kids. You know, Blood Syndicate, these are these are urban kids. These, you know, they're in their late 20s. They've been through the shit. Um, and so it makes sense that they would, you know, think that way. And so, yeah, it's it, it ends up being a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying this as well. But I, I also take your point about the end of the story. And yeah, like... All of a sudden, some of these, I, I think they they call them super Karens at the end. Yeah. Right? These mothers of, of kids, uh, of other girls that are at this all-girls school in, in Switzerland um, that paid Alva for Q-Juice, so they have powers now too. And now there's going to be a battle between Icon and these, uh, or between Rocket and her two allies and, and all these super Karens. So that's kind of funny. The other thing I was struck by is the, just the fact that the name Hitler is in this book. Yeah, and so what? But I think Hitler is a little more. Uh, I, I could see some people going, "Well, God, why do you even invoke that name?" It, it's a bold choice. I did. You do notice that there's no Nazi symbology in it, uh, but I think even the fact that the that the name Hitler is in the book, they won't be able to sell this in in Germany. Like it's completely banned. Um, but thank God they didn't put any, you know, swastikas or anything like that. That that would have really been a probably yeah. a bridge too far. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, interesting. It's, that so, even, it's so obvious, though, that it's German. It's so obvious that it's Nazi. Yeah, which is why they didn't. They they probably would have been better off had they just said like beloved leader or or something like that, right? Like think about. Um, and they don't use the word Nazis at all. If you think about what. Um, yeah. What Robert Venditti did in his in his series when uh, with the Freedom Fighters, the word they called them Razzis, yeah. Razzis instead of Nazis. Um, yeah, because you just don't you just don't use that word. But uh, yeah, I was surprised to even see the word Hitler. But you know, again, it doesn't bother me. But I, I I respect the fact that it does bother some people, and you can understand why when you think back on the history of uh, of that and persecution and what have you. But yeah, overall, a fun issue. Again, I wish it was coming out on time. Um, but yeah, I imagine a lot of people will be picking up and trade again, gorgeous covers. And also I'll point out M30 there on the trade dress. This is the, the 30th anniversary of, uh, of milestone. So, uh, all right. Speaking of fantastic covers up next tales of the teen Titans two starring Raven written by Tenny Howard 
Uh, Eleonora Carlini handles the art. Lee Luffridge on colors. Troy Petrie on letters. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard to even say which is the best cover here. They're so fantastic. The main cover, it's Nicholas Scott. So, I mean, that's gorgeous. But then you look at cover B, Christian Ward. Uh, Max Dunbar does a Blue Beetle movie cover, which is fantastic. Riley Rosmo does a, a cover as well, uh, which I think is a 1 in 25, which uh, right away I recognize it as Riley, but it's not as sort of um, – it's a little more realistic. Uh, than, not as stylistic. Normal, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Not as stylized. But it looks like it has a little bit of a manga influence, you know, like the head looks a little bit bigger than the body. But it's it's fantastic. And she's got her arms outstretched and, you know, she's making uh, – you can see like the spells and what have you. Um, but then we also have a 1 in 50 from Danny, which is probably my least favorite but still really, really great, uh, especially like the face. It's, it's almost like the next panel, if you will, after Rosmo's cover because now she's pulling the hood down. And then the last cover is Chris Somney. And it's got the whole Titans team on there, just looking very classic as Chris Somney's art. So timeless, you know, a little bit of Darwin Cook uh, influence, if you will. So, um, yeah, I already ordered the Nicholas Scott cover because I'm a huge fan of Nick. And, you know, I know her and she's such a sweetheart. Um, But I didn't – I ordered that not having seen the rest of these covers. And I probably still would have ordered the the cover by Nicola, but – God, I think I'm going to have to pick up that cover B from Christian Ward as well because, man, it's just fantastic. So, yeah, every, you can't go wrong. No matter what cover you pick in this book, you can't go wrong. Uh, the inside, uh, I don't know. Let's see what you thought, Rocky. Uh, well, the, the inside, the art sort of had to grow on me here. I'm, it's, I am such a fan of the original George Perez Marv Wolfman iteration of, 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 the, of the Teen Titans that – now that the Teen Titans are Titans, I still think of George Perez's art. I still think in that of that particular style of Raven. I straight up, I just don't like this look of Raven. I hate her short hair. I hate her red flare black hair. I hate it. It's short. I don't like. I don't like this manga version. I don't like the art in this. It's not my particular first choice. However, as a compliment to the artist, and um, could you help me out? Who is the artist here? Uh, it's Carlini. Um, yeah, Eleonora Carlini. Eleonora Carlini. Uh, I I will give her a compliment because if I can, if I'm not a big fan of the art when I initially see it, but by the time I get to the end of the story, I I like it or it, it feels like it. If it, it it just it's sort of like it's sort of like going. It's I guess I could use an example of sort of like laying down on a bed. At first, I'm not comfortable, but then after a few minutes, all of a sudden, I'm falling asleep and I'm comfortable. It's like so. It's sort of. I, I became comfortable with the art as the story progressed. And um, and the story itself, uh, I guess, uh, you know, Teeny Howard, I, I, I did did a reasonably de- decent job here. I At first, I, I, I struggled to, to sort of get a handle on what was happening, but uh, it basically it involves Raven, uh, uh, Raven interacting with her brother, uh, Another one of the the children of Neuron is Trinity, and we met Trinity as a result of the Lazarus event. He became exposed to Lazarus Rain, and he he's a demon that became, I guess, a, a son or a, one of the many demons of of, of Neuron. And um, Raven here, what what Teeny Howard manages to do is that she basically retells the origin of Raven, 
through the or through uh, well vicariously through another character who is pregnant and there's she's this her, her name is Eden and this Eden character is pregnant and she's the wife of a priest and so the priest's wife Eden is pregnant and and they want to do a ritual to call upon Trigon and then this her child will become a a, a, a a daughter or a son of Trigon. And uh, that that is reminiscent of Raven's origin because Raven's mother made the sacrifice when, when Raven Raven's mother made the sacrifice of of giving birth to Raven, but also but then escaping and and trying to protect Raven to, to keep her away from her father Trigon and ultimately was successful, but not at, but basically at the cost of her soul. And so this is uh, what what is interesting and what worked I thought for this story is as as you see this very real modern day story playing out with this new character Eden who's pregnant, Raven wants to protect Eden and her unborn child in the same way that her mother tried to protect her, and I thought that that juxtaposition that interplay worked really well, and then uh, further compliments to Teeny Howard, how where Trinity or part of me Trinity. Um, I just drew a blank. What was the, her brother's or the other, uh, the other character's name? Um, trilogy. Sorry, trilogy. I don't know what I said. Uh, trilogy. Who is the the sort of a new DC character who's the son of uh, Trigon now because of Lazarus reign or a, a demon who's trying to get his favor. He uh, he's actually technically a a brother of 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 Raven. Uh, he 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 wants to. Raven, he's trying to find his own identity himself, but at the same time, and this is what didn't quite work for me. He's he he's got to he's got to first identify who he wants to be, but he also has to interact with with Trigon. And there's a bunch of I I don't really quite understand that. I don't know how you can try to get along with Trigon and then try to be your own person at the end. But that's what that's what trilogy essentially does at the end so tr trilogy has an opportunity to betray raven but ultimately uh fails to do so and so the story wasn't bad it, it wasn't bad it it worked well enough uh and um i i will say that i'm still even though i got accustomed to the art I still have a preference for the classical art. I think I would have loved Nicola Scott to have drawn the entire issue, to be honest. I think that would have been awesome. But that's uh, probably wishing for too much. But I thought the story worked overall. It was much better than Starfires, in my opinion. I liked it much better. I thought it was. It, it actually had something to say about Raven. We learned Raven's origin. We got a modern-day story that reflected it as well with modern-day sensibilities. I thought the dialogue was good. Uh, unlike the Starfire story, which I thought missed on all cylinders. But uh, what do you think of this? Oh, you're on mute. Sorry, bud. God dang it. Why do I keep doing that today? Uh, yeah, I would have loved to have seen Nick draw the whole thing as well. But, you know, she's busy drawing the regular Teen Titans book, uh, which is more than enough. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm not a fan of this this look of Raven. Like, set the artist aside, right? Like, it doesn't matter who the artist is. I'm not a fan of the the short red hair Raven with the little whatever tattoos on, you know, on her cheekbones or what have you. It just doesn't, yeah. I'm again, like, like yourself, I grew up with the classic George Perez, Marv Wolfman, um, 
Raven, which, man, go back and read that stuff. I, I remember when um, they did the issue where they, they showed the progression of Raven, and you went back and looked like, again, different way comics were made back then when uh, they would work on subplots for, for months and months, right? And you didn't really notice it. It was so subtle. But they gradually changed the way Raven looked over time from being a very round face with a very small forehead to a very elongated face with, a, you know, much more pronounced widow's peak and looked much more like Trigon herself. And I, I remember as a kid reading that and they were they would pull panels from previous issues that George Perez had drawn and, and show them. And you saw the progression. You're like, oh, I didn't even realize how different she looked from the first panel to the last. Um, yeah, that that's to me, that's what Raven is supposed to look like. So it's a little, it's a little tougher to, to see her in this uh, situation. The other thing about it is we start talking about Raven and you can't help but think about her, her father, Trigon, as well, right? And that's part of what the, the issue is. But I love that Tini gets a little meta here. Like even Raven herself, when she's approached to kind of help out this woman who uh, is – who is going to follow the same path as Raven's mother did, right? Like she's impregnated. The child's going to be given to Trigon and what have you. And she's like, really? Like how often or how long am I going to be the hero that is like designated to oppose my father? Like I'm tired of dealing with Trigon at some point. And I, I sort of, so I liked that she acknowledged that because I sort of feel the same way, right? Like it's like, it's really? an old plot point. Getting, it's an old. Yeah. 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 We're getting a Raven story. So that means we have to deal with Trigon again. Like, isn't it enough already with Trigon? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I appreciate that. I appreciated that as well. Um, but again, you can kind of understand uh, what's being done because, you know, it is, it is Trigon. It is, he is, a you know, a, a central part of, of who she is as a character. So you can kind of understand it. Um, so, yeah, for me, this was just okay. I, I don't know that I would say it was better or worse than Starfire. I, I appreciated the Starfire story um, for what it was. Maybe I would uh, rank this one slightly above, but I didn't have as uh, as much of a problem with the Starfire as you. Although I completely understood where you're coming from in terms of characterization. I will say that, yeah, the, the characterization of Raven here is hues a little more closely to the classic characterization of Raven, even if she has skewed younger um, really in the last, I don't know, it's been a while, eight years or whatever. What, ever since that um, that Raven miniseries that Marv Wolfman actually came back and, and wrote, where we got sort of her modern retelling, she's just come across as much younger to me. Um, so, uh, all right. Up next, The Vigil, number four, from writer Rom V. Del, uh, Devmalia Prominic is the artist, which is a different artist than we've had before. Rain Barreto handles the colors. Dave Sharp on letters. Again, some fantastic covers here. Uh, I do think that the, uh, I think it's the B cover that has Saya on it. I sort of feel like that one should have been the cover that was on the Saya issue, which was last issue. Maybe yeah. it wasn't ready in time, but again, every one of these covers is uh, is really fantastic. Yeah. Unfortunately, we only have cover A in, the, in our preview copies here, so yeah. people are wondering. Uh yeah, the Saya covers is really fantastic. It has a, a bunch of different depictions of him, which makes sense, you know, because he can change his appearance. Um, but I hope everybody had a chance to listen to my interview with Ron V from San Diego Comic-Con, where we talked a lot about the vigil. 
He mentioned that there's some real twists and turns coming up. We get one of them here. Um, Dr. Sankara, it's sort of been hinted at, intimated that there's more than meets the eye. What's going on there? Perhaps he has something to do with the origins of these characters. Certainly he's not telling them everything. Everybody in this series, as Ram uh, told me, has their secrets, has the things that they're holding very close to the the chest. Uh, And yeah, we find out here at the end of the issue, uh, Sankara basically says that he thought these people up. They meet somebody who was the, the first person, the first individual that he gave powers to. Um, when they go uh, searching this old laboratory, this guy's clearly out to get Sankara. Um, and once they defeat him, um, they say, you know, why, why is this guy coming after you? Castle, the young kid who's uh, the textbook definition of a psychopath, he sort of has put all the pieces together. Uh, he tells Sankara, yeah, you need to tell the rest of the team uh, why they were sent there, why this new villain or the new antagonist is after Sankara. And he says, it's because I'm, I made him just like I made all of you. They're like, what do you mean you made us? And he says, by made, I mean, none of you existed before I thought you up. So wait, what is this guy's ability? What is his superpower? I mean, he just imagines something and it becomes real. Is he a genie incarnate? Like what the hell's going on? Amazing cliffhanger ending. Um, and again, it's just Rom V, you know, pulling the rug out from under us. Such a compelling story. It's so tightly paced. There's interesting characters. There's interesting character interaction. We still don't know who we can trust. We still don't know who we should be rooting for. Uh, Again, go listen to my interview with Rom. We discussed that, how you you write that when you don't know who to trust and who's your uh, point of view character, who's, you know, can you relate to when you don't know everybody's got a secret. Where are these people coming from? Where's your in? Uh, And yeah, he's just doing a fantastic job of making it so compelling. And then on top of that, we also get a sequence, you know, I mentioned Brainiac when we were talking about uh, Icon and Hardware. Hardware. Well, the Brainiac symbol shows up here when we have uh, another character that I don't think we've seen before. And uh, if we have, I don't remember seeing him previously in this uh, in this issue. But he's he's has taken over um, a division of uh, Supercore, which formerly LexCore. Um, his name is Festus Hemp. And he says, yeah, you might have seen me around the offices a couple of days. As of 24 hours ago, I required uh, controlling interest in, in this little arm of, of LexCorp. And we're going to be taking over things. We're going to be moving things forward. Um, and we're going to rebrand it. We're going to call it Harmonia. And when he says that, he, he uh, basically shows this symbol on the table, this symbol in green. Surprised it wasn't in pink, honestly, because the symbol is the Brainiac symbol, the three little circles with lines connecting, two lines connecting uh, uh, the, the circles. And so I'm like, wait, Brainiac again? Like, what the hell's this guy got to do with Brainiac? And what does Brainiac have to do with the Vigil? Is this how the Vigil is going to get tied in more closely to the DC universe? Is this what Rombi was talking about when he was saying there's a couple things coming up that he can't wait for people to find out? Is it this? Is it... Sankara dreaming these people up? Is it both? I think we only have two more issues of the series, and man, I, I can't really remember a series that I haven't wanted to end so badly <laughs> as this. His Swamp Thing got more issues. I thought his Swamp Thing was okay. This, to me, is way more compelling. I got I really hope this gets more issues. 
um, or in some way the story gets to continue. Because I don't see how I'm going to be satisfied with only two more issues of this. Uh, you know there's going to be secrets that aren't going to be revealed. There's going to be story points that he's not going to get to. He knows them all. He knows the answers. He told me as much. Um, so, yeah, I really want more of this. The art is fantastic. Um, again, it's not the regular series artist. Um, Pramanik does the art, fills in, does a fantastic job. Um, yeah, I just... Every issue, he continues to impress me. This, for me, without question, is my favorite thing Rom V's ever done. So, uh, I don't know if you're enjoying it as much as me, Rocky. What do you think? I, I absolutely... I thoroughly enjoy this. I'm just, uh, as you're, uh, I appreciate you uh, elaborating as you did on, on the storyline because you, you, because I was trying to remember all the names of the characters again. And I appreciate uh, your, uh, uh, your, your recall. Uh, I loved, I love more of the history and the origin of Dodge. Uh, Castle continues to impress with his sort of sociopathic, almost psychopathic uh, uh, matter-of-fact dialogue that he has with Dr. Sankara as he basically says, look, uh, we're, here to, we're here to obtain this person, this other person that ultimately you created, so why don't you stop him? Uh, we, we saw Dodge use her power. She's far more powerful than we ever actually understood before. This Festus Hep, uh, full props to you, man. I had, I, I never made the connection. I didn't, when I looked at that symbol, I don't, I don't, I don't think of Brainiac when I look at that symbol. But I don't think you're wrong. I think it is the Brainiac symbol. Yeah, well, I mean, we saw that symbol. I, did I mention it? We saw that symbol at the end of Superman Night Terrors. At the end of Superman Night Terrors, there's a screen in the Hall sure. of Justice yeah. that shows a silhouette, and that same symbol shows up on the forehead. Yeah. Again, well, showing exact. That's exactly the orientation on the forehead that, that's on Brainiac's forehead. Yeah. It's poop. It's poop on Brainiac's forehead. What's What's interesting here is that it's not normally the case. This is my cynicism with DC editorial. I'm almost surprised that they allowed Ram V using a brand new team called the Vigil to introduce a villain, Festus Hep, who manages to actually acquire a, a LexCorp building and and defeat Lex Luthor. Because uh, that's what he does. Like he managed to corporately uh, defeat Lex Luthor and and uh, and basically sort of take over uh, at least one of the one of the buildings that's part of Supercore. That's impressive. And he's linked to Brainiac. That's interesting. It makes me wonder: is it, if this Festus Hep is he actually a human or is he working for Brainiac? Is he actually a construct? We know that he has a minion called Mister Wall, uh, who is an assassin. Mister Wall basically is wondering why you just don't. Why doesn't uh, this Hestus seems to brag that he's got the power? This Festus Hep seems to brag that he's got the power to kill Vigil, to kill the to wipe out the entire team. But for some reason, wants to keep them all alive. He seems to know a lot of the secrets of Doctor Sankara and Doctor Sankara has passed. We know that Dr. Sankara is over 80 years old, and so he's is he immortal? We don't we don't really know. We know that Dr. Sankara was sort of meditating and accessing an, 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 a different kind of realm in past issues. So a lot of very interesting things are cropping up. And the fact that we now it's now been revealed that Dr. Sankara actually created the entire vigil from scratch, it makes me wonder, well, if if he were, are they all just products of his imagination or maybe he created them when he was in this other realm and they weren't necessarily entirely byproducts of his imagination, but maybe their origins are linked to the some of the images of him we saw in that other realm. Uh, and anyways, it's just really interesting. And regardless of the origins of these characters, they're interesting. They're very interesting. Kudos to Ram V because 
Let me just take, I, I love James Tynion's writing overall, but let me just say that I like Jane Ram V's, I like the quality of Jam, Ram V's new characters made up in this team of the Vigil, more so than I enjoy a lot of the new characters that Tynion brought with his Batman run. I like these characters. They're genuinely interesting. They feel new. They feel fresh. They uh, were already, I mean, we're only four issues in here and I feel that I know these characters already. And to the extent that I don't, Oddly enough, I feel that I do, and I want to get him. I want to get to know him better. That's the highest compliment I can give a writer. So you know, kudos to Ram V. Yeah, to to my point earlier at the top of the show, where I talked about Williamson saying, "Yeah, DC's got a lot of big bads, but they seem to go back to the well over and over, the same ones." So yeah, so we've got Brainiac in the Icon versus Hardware. We've got Brainiac symbol showing up on a silhouette of somebody in the Hall of Justice for Night Terror Superman number two. So is Brainiac going to show up in Night Terror's yep. Night's, uh, Night's End, the final final issue of that? And now we've got Brainiac here, somehow related to Festus Hemp and, Hep and uh, who is somehow related to Dr. Sankara, who yep. has it out for the vigil. Like, and in Superman. I, and he's in Superman with the, with, the, with the shrunken city, bottle city of Zarnia at the end of... Last yeah, the Superman annual. Yeah, the Superman yeah. annual that we had last week um, with yeah the Z Zarnians. Uh, so, I think it's fair to say whatever next event comes along, it's going to be Brainiac's going to be the big bad. The problem I have with Brainiac and where he is now, and I, I think maybe it happened sooner, but specifically when I remember it was the Convergence event where they they sort of elevated Brainiac to stop having him be like this personal villain for Superman, and he became more this collector who was going around bottling up cities to preserve, you know, dying civilizations or whatever. And he's a little more removed and almost like a Galactus level villain. He's just not as interesting to me. He feels less, he's, he's less petty <laughs> as terrible as that is. Right. Like he used to be such a petty villain going up against Superman. It used to feel personal. And now he's, uh, you know, they're leaning in a little more to this idea of him as a computer, as a robot as kind of unfeeling, uh, it's just not as interesting to me. Um, so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is, okay, again, if he's going to be the villain in the next event, I, I sort of get that you want to plant seeds everywhere. But for guys like us who read everything, it's just like, man, you, you don't have to beat us over the head with it. Like, give us some hints here or there. I'm reminded back in the day of when DC did a fantastic job of it, when they were building up, and this was like two years or 18 months uh, ahead of time when they were building up to Crisis on Infinite Earths, how the monitor would show up just for a panel or two. And they never showed him, right? Like he was um, in silhouette um, and he would just show up like randomly in a book, a panel here, a panel there. And you had no idea. Like, who is this guy? What's going on? You, you just had no idea. Here we're just like, here we go. One week, he's Brainiac's showing up in three different books. One book last week, three books this yeah. week, hinted at. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like, I think you can be a little more subtle, DC. Um, so anyway, let's move on. Um, up next, we have Batman uh, White Knight Presents Generation Joker, book four. We didn't get to go into detail on book three because our press copy was corrupted. I have since read it. I will say issue three was a heck of a lot of fun. Um, it, that, that, that's just the one, if I had to use one word to describe it, it's just a lot of fun. Like the kids sort of feeling themselves, uh, just having fun, wild adventure. Uh, but then some consequences at the uh, that lead directly into this issue where they've gone to Arkham Asylum. Uh, this, 
I, I don't remember seeing the version of Victor Freeze before, the uh, Sean Gordon Murphy or Murphyverse version. Here it's interesting. He's he, he has a heat suit that has to keep him warm rather than needing to, to be cold. But he did develop the uh, technology, this cobalt vapor drive that uh, – the personality of Jack Napier Joker is stored in. It got damaged last issue. This issue, uh, the kids uh, take it to Arkham Asylum, to Victor Freeze's lab. They want to fix it. Come to find out the whole reason Napier was able to use it is because he sabotaged the lab uh, and stole the technology from Victor Freeze. Uh, but he is inclined to try to help Jacqueline and Bryce, uh, but maybe not in the way they want him to. Uh, he's more looking to pre- to delete the drive to prevent the Joker because he thinks Jack Napier in any form uh, is dangerous because he is the Joker, um, and hijinks ensue if you uh, if you will. So I am enjoying this. Um, I will say that it feels a little disconnected from a lot of the previous Murphy verse things that I've read. Uh, it probably feels most closely connected to the. Um, the Harley Quinn series that was done before because Batman barely shows up and I mean barely uh, he only shows up as referenced by other people um, until the I think until the end um, yeah he shows up on the on the last panel um, of this uh, of this issue so I but I am enjoying this much more than I thought I would um, but maybe because it's not necessarily a joker story in a lot of ways it's more focused on the kids so uh, yeah what'd you think of it i thought it was interesting that the uh the harley quinn character in this story or rather the uh the other harley quinn character the one that's in love with poison ivy i forget her riot name. riot thank you riot uh openly provokes jack napier and actually i there was a there was a moment where i thought that the Joker persona of Jack Napier was going to dominate and take over Jack Napier. But in a very curious scene, you know, uh, he manages to overcome the influence of the Joker. Jack Napier manages to keep the Joker persona of him, of his psyche of of himself at bay. And that's very interesting because one of the things that the Joker, I mean, Jack Napier has feels very guilty. Jack Napier has actually resigned himself that he's going to die. He just wanted to spend the last few, he wanted to go on a road trip with uh, Jackie, with his children, Jackie and Bryce, uh, before he basically faded into non-existence. And, and uh, I think that, I think we're slowly discovering as readers that Jack Napier is in fact getting his sanity back. And now that might just be misdirection, but the fact that he can keep the Joker at bay here, that that side of him in control, I think is very telling in this issue. Now, uh, you never know, that might all be misdirection, but I thought it was very interesting. I also like the fact that uh, I, I like what uh, Sean Gordon Murphy has done with respect to uh, Diana with uh, Wonder Woman or, or, or this his universe's version of uh, Diana Prince. As she, she basically scolds John Stewart. I mean, they're both FBI agents, but she, you know, she wants to basically talk with the children. She doesn't. She's not. She's. She doesn't like the idea of using 
you know, being very forceful. You, you can tell this is this is an Amazon. This is Wonder Woman. This is her employing her care ethics about, you know, this is children. We don't we don't need to treat them as if they're adults and supervillains. They're not. And in fact, they definitely aren't. But at the same time, they do get they do find themselves getting into trouble, but more like little misfits than anything else. And in any event, I thought the characterizations work here. And I like that it ended with Harley Quinn being very frustrated because you know, how are they going to, you know, what are they going to do now? Uh, you know, because their kids are insistent that they want to save their dad. What are they going to do? Who's left to protect them? Uh, and of course, it, it shows uh, Bruce Wayne, uh, Batman, who at some point hopefully will arrive on the scene. And, that, and that'll be quite interesting to see what happens then. Because uh, quite frankly, I'm looking forward to Batman meeting uh, John Stewart and Diana Prince as well. And that, that'll be, uh, that's probably more so for a series that follows this because we know that Superman, that we know that Diana Prince and John Stewart have hired Bruce Wayne and made a deal with him to, to investigate this Kryptonian Superman in this Murphyverse. And so that's that's another series that we'll be following this one. But I, I, I like how it's all coming together. And this is like, this is a good, almost like a child. It's almost like the Disney side story dealing with the kids. And it, it's a, it's just exploring another side of the Murphyverse. Uh, and we've, we've, we've gotten all different kinds. We've gotten a serious side of the Murphyverse. We've gotten, this is more of the playful side. And we're going to be getting more of the Superman side and the Wonder Woman and maybe the world's finest uh, coming up uh, in, in the next series. So uh, again, just it, it continues to be impressive uh, what, Mur what Sean Gordon Murphy, the universe that he's slowly creating. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm enjoying it. You know, when the first one started, I didn't really care for the first one as much, you know, because it was very Joker-centric. Um, but yeah, it's been interesting to see the subtle changes in, in different characters. Um, so yeah, it's definitely working. All right, last book we're going to talk about in detail, Harley Quinn, Black, White, and Redder, number two. Three stories in here. First one's written by Kelly Thompson with art by Annie Wu, letters by Clayton Cowles. Uh, the second one, let me get to the credits page here. Sorry. Uh, the second one is written by, uh, well, it's credited as story and art by Brant and Stein. Uh, Clayton Cowles is the letter. And then the final one is written by uh, Ryan Parrott. The art in that one is by Luana Vecchio. Becca Carey handles the letters. So uh, I enjoyed the first one, which is basically <laughs> Harley kidnaps Zatanna, and she's tired of going to these like villain bars and, and being disrespected because all anybody ever wants to bring up is her relationship with the Joker. And so she kidnaps Zatanna, and she persuades Zatanna with her magic to change Harley Quinn's origin to be bat Batman fied is the way they put it. Right. So <laughs> yeah. she, you know, her, her origin in reality has changed to, you know, her parents were killed in an alley and she's dark and brooding and what have you. And we get a, a Batman fied look for Harley as well. And she goes to the bar and even though she's intimidating, everybody still wants to talk about her and the Joker and what have you. So she decides no, make me like Superman, right? Everybody loves Superman. And so then again, we've got a Harley look, which is Superman uh, mashup. And she goes there and uh, somehow it's worse, right? She's like, <laughs> what's going on? How is this getting worse? Yeah. Uh, you know, even though everybody's supposed to love her because she's everybody loves Superman. So then she says Wonder Woman. That doesn't work. And then Green Lantern. And uh, she doesn't specify what Green Lantern. So she gets Guy Gardner Green Lantern. Uh, and then... 
Aquaman, which she gives uh, Zatanna the choice, and that doesn't work either. So it's a it's a great story from Kelly Thompson. You know, the moral of the story being, you know, accept yourself for who you are. Don't try to be somebody else. Um, but and it's also a bit meta when you talk about Harley and like think about how far Harley has come. Yes, she was always popular. Yes, there was, especially in today's uh, more self-aware, I guess, uh, pop culture um, sort of status that, that we're at, where you know having a, a woman that goes back for a, the, to be abused at the hands of the Joker over and over, that, you know that's that's problematic, uh, especially when Harley was becoming more popular. So you know, all credit to Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor for taking her out of that. And it really started maybe in the Terry Dodson series, um, Gotham. Was it Gotham City Sirens? No, it was just a, it was just Harley Quinn, her first solo series, and then right. continued in Gotham City Sirens um, to get her away from the Joker and what have you. So a little meta here in dealing with that and talking about um, accepting yourself for, for who you are. So I did appreciate that. The second story didn't really work that much for me. It was just kind of a a fun whatever no nonsense story, if you will, um, about the different super pets versus Harley's pets, which she calls the Legion of Doom Animals. Um, and I, I don't know. It, the art was fine, but it, it, yeah, typical zany Harley story didn't really do much for me. But then the final story uh, from Ryan Parrott has to do, again, very meta, very much ties in with where Harley is right now, back in Gotham City, having pie with Commissioner Gordon, explaining why she just beat the heck out of these cops who turns out, you know, they're dirty cops. And she talks about, you know, uh, Commissioner Gordon, he, he asked her, well, why would you want to come back here to Gotham City, you know, where you're with a joker, you did so many terrible things here. It's got to remind you of, you know, that toxic relationship and what have you. And she basically says, yeah, I come back here because I love it, because I want to protect the people. I want to make up for the bad things that I did. Kind of just like you, Commissioner Gordon, like, you know, the reason you're still here is because you have nothing else. So I really appreciated kind of the frankness of the voice that Harley has here uh, in the hands of Ryan Parrott. And I thought the art uh, was the best in the, in the final, um, the final story as well. I mean, I really enjoyed the Annie Wu mashup art um, seeing Harley Quinn, Batman fight and Superman fight. Um, but the overall aesthetic, I, I just didn't really care for. I, I don't think Annie Wu's art works really well with the limited color palette. I think it looks better when it's fully colored or not colored at all, uh, but that's just a personal preference. So, uh, anyway, what did you think of these three stories? Uh, well, kudos to Kelly Thompson, and uh, I liked Annie Wu's art. Uh, I it, it it I enjoyed it more than you did. I thought it worked really well, and uh, you know Kelly Thompson. In fact, I I actually think that Kelly Thompson's story is a better would would have made a great night terror story for Harley Quinn because it's all about her anxiety about wanting to be somebody else. So she doesn't have to be herself. So she could deal with her angst over the Joker only to discover that no matter who she tries to be, whether it's Superman, Batman, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, she still can't, she still can't escape the nightmare of being judged as being the Joker's girlfriend. I, I see this as being a night terror story and it's written by Kelly Thompson and it's in, uh, it's in Harley Quinn issue two, black and white and redder. So, and I, I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was, uh, well done. Uh, as for, I, I really enjoyed uh, uh, great, great pet inspections, uh, story and art by Brandt and, and Stein. And I, I, I love the, the idea of the super pets. 
uh, battling uh, Harley Quinn and her two hyenas. And so I thought that that was it was a lot of fun. It was it was a lot of fun. Of course, Harley Quinn gets her gets her butt kick and her pets uh, her pets lose. I, I like the way that she sort of threatens her two hyenas, Bud and Lou, that they better win or else. I mean, it, it was it, it was a lot of fun. Um, finally, the uh, the the final uh, the final story. I agree with you, writer Ryan Parrott, uh, Coffee Pie, and Oh My. Her converse, Harley Quinn's conversation with uh, J- Jim Gordon is frankly a conversation that we probably should have had at some point sooner, probably a couple of years ago following uh, Joker War, because that's really when, when Harley Quinn was making her move to try to want to be a better person in Gotham. It fits in, keep, it's really in keeping with that. And I love how it ended with Jim, Jim Gordon giving Harley the benefit of the doubt by actually believing Harley over that of her over that of his fellow police officers who he believes Harley when she says that they were uh, corrupt cops and, uh, and there's evidence to support that. And, uh, but yet at the same time, Jim Gordon, you know, he still knows that she's Harley. So I, I like it. It maintained that uncomfortable sort of uh, position of, you know, Jim Gordon always has that sort of uncomfortable relationship with vigilantes, whether it's Batman or anyone else. But at the same time, he, he knows to give them the benefit of the doubt. Jim Gordon has great instincts and Ryan Ferret's scripting does a good job of showing just how uh, good Jim, Jim Gordon's instincts are. And you need good instincts when you try to read Harley Quinn because she's uh, she can be different things to different people at any given time. So I, overall, I thought it was I thought it was good. I mean, for a second issue, I mean, I haven't honestly full disclosure. I haven't been buying the physical copies of Black, White and Redder, but the first issue I really liked and I really like this issue too. So I'm, uh, damn, I'm kind of, I'm sort of second guessing myself. Maybe I should have bought, should be picking them up. But uh, impressive. Yeah, I, I just, I can't, I don't want to. As much as these stories are interesting, and again, I really enjoyed the Ryan Parrott story. I, I just, I don't want to support these limited color palette. It was interesting when it was Batman black and white and the Superman red and blue. Like once in a while. But it's like one ends and then immediately started. And, and Marvel does it now too, right? Like we get Moon Knight and, and Wolverine. And I don't know that we've had a Spider-Man one yet, but um, Deadpool. Like it's just, it's enough. Like enough. Uh, it's too much. So, I'm, yeah. I, I would like these to be colored. And I would like you to just put these stories in the regular Harley book. You know what I mean? Yep. So. Anyway, uh, so that's all the single issues. There's no other single issues that are coming out this week. We talked about them all. Uh, and yeah, I knew Rocky said it would be a shorter one. I knew I had a feeling it wouldn't be. I don't actually know where we are with time. But there are a ton, in, in addition to a ton of single issues, there's a ton of collections this week as well. So Batman Volume 2, uh, and this is Volume 2 of Zdarsky's run. Uh, so it collects Batman 131 through 135. This is on the heels of, of Failsafe. Failsafe sent Batman to the alternate dimension. Detective Comics, Volume 1, Gotham Nocturne, ha- hardcover. So this is collecting the um, first part of the ROM V run. Collects issues 1062 to th- 1065. We also have a Nightwing collection, Joker War, trade paperback. So it collects Nightwing's 70 through 77. And Nightwing Annual 3, that's the Dan, end of the Dan Jurgens run, right before Tom Taylor takes over. We've got Wonder Girl Homecoming trade paperback. Um, so that collects the uh, Wonder Girl Homecoming series from Joelle Jones, Adriana Mello. Um, yeah, read that one at your own risk. Go back and listen to our reviews of it. It was, it was, a, little, uh, it was a little rough, 
pacing wasn't great, very uneven. Uh, we've also got Wonder Woman Volume 4, Revenge of the Gods trade paperback. So this finishes off the uh, Becky Cloonan and Michael Conrad run um, with issues 795 and through 800 of Wonder Woman before Tom King's run starts. We've got the Batman One Bad Day box set hardcover. So that collects all the Batman One Bad Day books in uh, hardcover. It comes in a slipcase, what have you. Uh, if you're just looking for some individual hardcovers, the Batman One Bad Day Raz al Ghul hardcover is also out. If you're just buying the select ones that you want. That one was written by um, Tom Taylor. Monkey Prince, Volume 2, which collects issues 6 through 12 of that series, which Rocky and I both really enjoyed, from uh, Gene Luen Yang, art by Bernard Chang. That's out. Uh, Teen Titans Go box set, trade paperback, TV or not TV, collects um, the first three trade paperbacks for Teen Titans Go. So if you're uh, a fan of that cartoon, you can get Volume 1, Volume 2, Volume 3 in a slipcover. And then finally, uh, New 52 at the launch of it, 2011 Wonder Woman was written by Brian Azzarello. Art was by Cliff Chang. Uh, leans a lot into the mythology, gods and what have you. So the the omnibus that is out collects issues 0 through 35. And that also includes a 23.1 issue, which was when they were doing those uh, villain lenticular covers. Um, so if you're a fan of Brian Azzarello... Cliff Chang and like that era of Wonder Woman, you can uh, pick that up as well. Uh, all right, Rocky, moment of truth. I don't know if it's a hard uh, pick for you, but uh, book of the week. Uh, well, I I have to cheat because there's too many. Uh, I'm going to pick my favorite night terrors because uh, if I so my favorite night terrors uh, this week was. Uh, Catwoman, my Terrace Catwoman. I thought Teeny Howard did a really good job connecting it to the upcoming Gotham War and getting us a clue as to Selena's anxieties with respect to what the the main uh, the main plot line in that event. So I thought that was very well done. Uh, uh, other than that, uh, it's a it was a really tough call between World's Finest and Vigil. Oh man, but uh, oh man, I I, I got to go. I only because I've seen the world's finest story done again and again. I'm gonna I'll, I'll I'm gonna go with Vigil, uh, for, uh instead of uh, and maybe I, I apologize if I if I stole your choice. I, I suspect that might have been yours as well. But uh, I, uh, I think I've yeah I think I've picked Vigil as my book of the week every time that it's come out. Every issue yeah. this week's no different. Vigil, it's the best book DC's putting out. It continues to be the best book DC's putting out. I can't in good conscious pick anything else i to be honest i didn't really consider anything else when i read it i was like oh my god uh especially after having the conversation with rom v i, I didn't think he could surprise me <laughs> to the level that he did um but yeah he knocked it out of the park once again uh so yeah um but you're right i mean world's finest was fantastic as well but yeah it's the vigil it stands as head and shoulders above everything else every week that it comes out and yeah, I just I really really hope that it continues uh, beyond this uh, the series. So, uh, all right, anything else you want to uh, plug or mention? I know we've both been really busy. It's been hard getting uh, uh, other content out. Not in not in particular. No, I've been enjoying. I've been I've been listening to your interviews, and I've been just you know I've just been so busy at work. I've uh, I just consider myself lucky that I can review these comics with you every week. It's uh, one of my 
it's one of my respites and I enjoy doing it and I wish I had time to do more, but uh, it is what it is. And, but hopefully, uh, you know, we can maybe tease, we do hope to do a, a single, single focus on Tom King, Wonder Woman number one, uh, when that comes out next month. So we can maybe tease, tease viewers and, and listeners with that. Yeah. Don't forget everybody, the call coming out soon, um, from Kelly, Kelly Thompson. Thompson. Yeah. And Luis. Yes. Cannot wait to order it. I think FOC is passed, but you can order the subsequent issues. Be sure you hit your comic shop the day that it comes out. You'll want to pick it up. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. Have some more creator own spotlights coming uh, as well for some other Zoop campaigns that are going on. So uh, look forward to those. Um, I think Bad Idea is doing uh, a Kickstarter as well. Should have a conversation about that. And then, yeah, uh, going to have Tinny on at some point. Going to talk to the people from Distillery. So there's a lot of stuff in the pipeline coming up. Be sure uh, to check all that out. And then uh, we should be able to uh, have an announcement that's going to coincide with Baltimore Comic Con for the next Pocket Watch Press series that's going to launch. So we'll be teasing that coming up in the next few weeks uh, and hopefully have some art to show you as well le- leading into Baltimore Comic Con. So don't forget to head over to YouTube, everybody, if you're listening to this uh, on the podcast feed. Do a search for Rocky's channel, Comic Boom, Comic Space Boom, exclamation point. Once you're there, you know what to do. Ring the notification bell, subscribe, leave a comment. We really appreciate uh, the support. Conversely, if you stumbled across us on YouTube and you aren't subscribed to the Comic Source uh, to listen to all our audio content, just go to wherever you get your podcast, whatever app or platform it is. Do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe. That's going to do it for this episode, everybody. We appreciate the support as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.